right, folks, episode two of the Summit Up podcast. This month, we're trying a slightly different format, a little bit of an experiment where we go through all of the questions that are answered and unanswered during the Cyber AB Town Hall as a general framework for exploring the news and happenings around the CMMC ecosystem and adjacent to the CMMC ecosystem for the month of October. As always, to my surprise, more stuff happens in a month than uh, people imagine. And this episode went quite a bit longer than we expected. Uh, and we didn't really, we didn't even get to all of our talking points. We go through in this episode a recap of the town hall and sort of the main takeaways from the Cyber AB. Then we dive into the questions that were submitted. Some of the topics that we get into as a result of exploring those questions are what in the world? is going to happen with NIST SP-800-171 Appendix E, which contains all of the assumptions that were used in the design of 800-171 and have caused numerous and seemingly endless problems and edge cases when CMMC shows up to assess those requirements. We get into a quick overview of NIST's summary of SP-800-171 comments that were submitted by the public, uh, as well as some rumors about funding appropriations for the CMMC program and the requirements that it assesses, including uh, a status update for CMMC rulemaking, uh, as well as a mild controversy that popped up regarding an updated graphic on the CMMC webpage that shifts the number of requirements at CMMC Level 1 from 15 to 17 and back to 15 and so on and so forth. We explore that topic at length and sort of quell all of the alarm around the idea that the requirements are somehow changing. And then finally, we have a brief discussion about uh, the recently released CISA cross-sector performance goals for cybersecurity and the implications for the DIB as a critical infrastructure sector and the DOD as the sector risk management agency uh, sort of overseeing the governance of that critical infrastructure sector and how some of the standards that can be put out by CISA and DHS, DOD, and other agencies uh, seemingly are very different, but under the hood, they are all the same, how to try to understand, interpret, and navigate that patchwork of regulations, recommendations, and security controls. So, very wide net of topics that we cover uh, this month. We read all of the comments and feedback across all the platforms that we put this podcast uh, out onto. So if you have thoughts or ideas about ways to improve the format, things you'd like us to talk about, please let us know and we'll be sure to incorporate that moving forward. Make sure that you like and subscribe wherever you listen to or watch this podcast and enjoy the show. I handed stuff out, but it wasn't candy. I was like, uh, you know, one day this kid's got to learn. So I printed out 300 copies of NIST SP-853 <laughs> Rev 5. And I was like, you know, you got to learn today. But eventually, you know, this is what this isn't. It's not about candy. You want some real brain candy, 853 hard copy, single sided. So you have room for notes. Right? Have you heard the good news? Ron Ross has come back to, <laughs> come back to earth in this form. He's he's back. Well, yeah, we're back. I mean, you know, I think the NIST team, uh, people, I think, overestimate how many resources the NIST team actually has. It's pretty incredible. Look at the size of this thing. 
I mean, yeah. the fact that their team, this thing is, this this binder weighs more than some of the children who I was giving the binder to at, when they came out for uh, candy last night. Definitely going to get our house TP'd for that, for sure, though, because yeah, the house next door was, they went crazy, built a huge haunted house, had to get a permit, right? I mean, it was like really intense. Like they go all out every year. House on the other side of us, full-size candy bars. They also go and fully commit. And then they come to your house and hear about MFA. And uh, yeah, I was like, I was like, you have to implement MFA, and Mm -hmm. you need to understand these controls because that's what do you kids know about FIPS validated encryption? That's right. Yeah, especially yeah, a bunch of kids thought they were slick because they had a whole pillowcase that they were going to use for their candy, and I was like, ah, perfect size for this uh, gigantic (laughs) binder of eight hundred fifty three. So, you know, just trying to do my part here, uh, you know, and move. Move the needle on understanding 853 because I think, as we'll talk about today, um, it all goes back to 853. Whether you're trick or treating or whether you're trying to stand up an assessment program like CMMC or you're trying to do revisions, uh, it seems like all roads lead to 853. So I'm really kind of doing these kids a favor, you know what I mean? Yeah, you got to start them early, and then the more they know, learn about it, the better off they're gonna yeah, be. Yeah, you do you your know, part. I mean, that's you know. Yeah. It's how I came up. It's how I came up. Trick or treating. Nope. 853 all night. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we'll see how we'll probably get a letter and some upset parents. It was, it was pretty heavy. You know, these binders are a good thing. It wasn't raining. You know, if it was raining, like it was where you were at a waterlogged copy of 853 is, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty terrible. (laughs) Yeah. All right, man. So, um, I still am surprised. I mean, I said this in the intro last month. I still mm-hmm. am surprised that in a given month, how much stuff actually happens in the world of CMMC slash the, especially the adjacent world of CMMC, all the things that are directly or indirectly related that sort of orbit around CMMC, if you will. It's actually each month at the start of the month, I'm always like, well, this will be a quiet month. And then inevitably, 30 days later, you're like, man, we don't have enough time to talk about all of the things that happen. So sometimes the moving parts cause more moving parts and the, the one part that we want to stand still or be firm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's definitely difficult for any normal person to keep up with because they're doing things like going out and trick or treating like normal people and trying to live their life. So I think the best place to start is probably a summary of the AB town hall, because that's the one that is probably the best um, entry point into some of the topics that we'll dive into in more detail. Sure. But it's also probably the one that is the easiest to sort of summarize and probably put it up front for people that didn't catch the town hall, but they want to know what was said. Because the town hall was an hour long, but you know it's not going to take an hour to summarize. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I, I feel like it's not as hard hitting as, as last month's town hall was. Um, there were some things that you would think that on the surface, it wasn't as rah, rah, right. But then once we start digging into it and we start talking about it, you start looking at maybe some of the questions or some of the things that's going on, um, yeah. thus far, it's, it just, it, you're like, oh, this will take off. And do we yeah, have five sure. hours to talk about this? Right. Yeah. I think if we cover just some of the takeaways from the town hall, we can get into the, um, into the questions, because I think that's always a common point of frustration for folks is that a ton of questions get submitted and uh, not a lot of questions get answered. And I think a lot of good questions get submitted that never get brought back up again, just because of 
time constraints, right? So, you know, overall, right? Overall, at least in, in, in my takeaway of the town hall, the joint surveillance program uh, continues to roll along. So the joint surveillance program being the collaboration, the, uh, the, co- the, the hot collab between DOD's DIBCAC assessment teams and the CMMC C3PAO assessment teams. Effectively, before the rule comes out, DOD is able to get DIBCAC and C3PAOs to work together in order to run assessments not CMMC assessments because the rule's not done. They are DIBCAC high assessments, which we talked about last month. And now as of today, the end of October, um, I think a handful of companies have gone through this initial joint surveillance process with success. And uh, from what I've heard, there are many companies out there that have sort of reached out to their C3PAOs and said, we're interested in going through our joint surveillance assessment, DIBCAC is now starting to schedule them in the queue. So that process is occurring, you know, as we speak. Yeah, as we see, you see some of the organizations are now coming out publicly and stating, hey, we're done with this, we've done it. And yeah. it, it's, uh, for, for the most part, we see one that's that's very visual, that's out in the front, that, that's talking about that they're doing it. And then we know from what was reported to us by Matt Travis in, in the AV Town Hall, um, that the other of the the other two of the first three that that, that w- took place are done, and, and yeah. so um, yeah, that's obviously so yeah, obviously a, a nice step in the right direction. It, it shows us that it essentially, not once again, not as far along as we want to be, but we're making baby steps to the bus. We're getting to where we need to go, and they're kind of as we're going through. One of the things that that I found interesting in this one's town hall is that we were provided with a little bit of feedback that says that, hey, these are the things that we saw from these first three joint surveillance assessments that you might want to take note of, that you might want to improve on, or yeah. that may help you when it, when it comes time for you to do your surveillance. Your, yeah, your I, wonder, I wonder if they'll um, publish the results of their joint surveillance assessments like they did last month for their results of DIBCAC medium assessments. You know, if it's all redacted and anonymized, will DIBCAC... Uh, say, you know, this is what we saw because the, the, from what we've heard, three companies have gone through, three companies have made it through the process. We're sort of waiting on all the press releases and stuff to come out. But if all the companies that sign up for the, for the voluntary joint surveillance program are passing, but all the companies that get a call from DIBCAC to go through a high or a medium level assessment and they're not doing well, then you start to see a big split where the sort of early adopters who are volunteering for assessments are all doing well, and then everyone else is falling below the line. So I don't know if that trend will continue because only so many joint surveillance assessments have been done, but it will be interesting to see if they give us the data from the joint surveillance. Will there be companies out there that volunteer for joint surveillance and don't make it through as well as the first three? You know, Will they have similar results to what DIBCAC showed us last month, where there's a big disparity between where they thought they were and then what their actual assessment was. Uh, you know, we don't have that data yet, but it'll be interesting to see if they, if they come out with it. So the other part of the AB town hall that they always talk about is the CACO portion, the training portion, uh, the training and certification of assessors in the ecosystem is a big part of each town hall. And Kyle Gingrich basically laid out that the assessor ecosystem continues to crystallize. So they 
mid-month released all the results of the CCP beta exam, and a bunch of people are now officially uh, CCP, CMMC certified practitioner uh, certified effectively, right? They've passed that certification. Uh, and I believe what they said is that at the end of the month, I think, I believe it's already out, the CCA, so the lead assessor certification for CMMC, that beta exam is also out. So you'll start to continue to see more and more availability of that exam to the public, not just the beta version for all the provisional assessors and instructors. Uh, so probably by, I don't know, the end of Q1, you'll have uh, everybody up and rolling so that people can enroll in that training and go through that whole process. Uh, we'll make sure that we link it below to the recording of the town hall, but they've got a whole roadmap slide now of you know what they call the assessor journey of getting signed up, getting through the training, taking the certification exam, meeting all the prerequisites and going through that whole process, which honestly, you know, compared to a year ago, that's a huge difference than uh, what they had beforehand. I mean, for a long time, it was just speculation about there's going to be exams and there's going to be certs and there's going to be all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's here. They already have it. They have officially certified CCPs, CCAs right around the corner. They, you know, I mean, that, that training ecosystem is, I mean, it's it's basically up and running at this point in just a few more weeks, probably before it's it's fully, fully fleshed out. Yeah, for sure. We um, certainly this time last year, probably we were just talking about how there needs to be uh, amendments made to the RP, the registered practitioner courses, and the training wasn't in depth or thorough enough. And uh, now we're at the point where people are being classified as certified professionals in CMMC. And then I think if I'm not mistaken, um, actually, I, I'm not mistaken. Um, they said it in the town hall is that uh, people who pass the, the, the beta exam, the CCP, that, that have the badges that have been credentialed um, now uh, have free reign on taking the CCA, right? You're going to have the first yeah. stab at taking the CCA course. Yeah, I, I probably should study for that. You know, it's yeah. interesting with the with the CCA. So the CCP is sort of the baseline uh, certification for you know being a member of an assessment team, being aware of what's going on in assessment. It's good general knowledge, I think, for anyone, not just people who want to be assessors, because if you're an implementer or you're a company that's going to be assessed, taking the CCP training tells you what the assessors know and how they think. So it's, you know, it's this it's the same thing, effectively. Right. Especially like we talked about last month, if the questions in the assessment guide are the same for a self-assessment, for a uh, medium level assessment, for a CMMC assessment, for a DIBCAC assessment, then taking the assessor training would ensure that you are asking, interpreting the questions in the proper way, right? So it's not like this is a super obscure training that's only designed for assessors themselves. It's advantageous to everybody. The, the interesting part to me is that in order to get CCA, the sort of lead assessor certification, you have to have CCP, but you also have to have demonstrated assessment experience. You actually have to have been on assessments. Now, that creates a big constraint where you don't have a lot of assessors, but it also is very different from a lot of certifications like CISA, which is an auditing and assessment certification that you can take and pass and get certified and have never conducted a real life assessment ever before. So, you know, it's a, it's a big trade-off where you want assessors that have experience. You want assessors that know what they're doing and know what they're talking about. I mean, I think everybody wants that. 
but it also constrains the supply of assessors because the path to getting to CCA is one where you have to have done assessments. You can't just sign up and get the certification. I mean, it, it, it's definitely got advantages and disadvantages, right? Yeah. So uh, the question that I have, and I'm going to actually just openly ask you, um, is that in the slides that we got in the town hall, there was, this is the CCA, and then there's a such thing as a DOD CCA. Is there a difference between the both? I would have to look and see because uh, I'm not sure how they're, I'm not sure how they're making the, dis the distinction between the two. You know, I think as they roll CCA out, they'll probably clarify. Um, but I, I don't know off the top of my head. We'll have to, I'm, we'll have to. I, I, I saw some of the, the, the things that were required. Uh, you have to sit through three level two assessments, right? Yeah. And then you have to meet the DOD suitability and, and, and things of that nature, be a U.S. citizen, obviously. Um, but then in the meantime, as we're waiting for these people to go through these, this suitability, as we're waiting for assessments to spin up and, and things of that nature, you have teams full of what will potentially be CMMC CCAs, right? The, not the yeah. DOD, the, the branch yeah. off. And you'll have C, CCPs that are sitting with C3PAOs that are performing these assessments, obviously, to get that experience uh, requirement right. under their belt. But what happens, like, who, who takes the lead in that situation? Who's the lead assessor? Is it just basically... Yeah. It's you, guy. You know, like, is it like a jury? Yeah, within, you know, we within the context of represent us all. Yeah, within the <clears throat> within the context of a pure, C, you know, in a vacuum, within a pure CMMC assessment, the theoretically, mm -hmm. uh, a theoretical CMMC only assessment in the future, the CCA is basically, the, you know, the the lead main point of discretion and judgment and evaluation, and everything flows through the CCA. So. How they sort of jive out um, DOD CCA versus CMMC CCA as things play out, you know, maybe they'll give us more details as we as we go along in the town halls. The main the main point being this: the 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 bulk of the training and certification that most people are going to deal with is the CCP, and mm -hmm. uh, that's you know relevant to people who want to be CCAs. It's relevant to people who just want to be. CCPs. It's relevant to people who don't even want to do assessments, but they're going to get assessed and they need to know what's going on. The overall sort of takeaway, though, is that that, that training and certification ecosystem continues to crystallize, just like the overall CMMC ecosystem, as we, you know, it seems like every week we get news that there's another certified C3PAO out there. There's more people going through the beta exams and now the formal, you know, publicly released exams. So the whole thing continues to sort of churn along uh, as we go, which is which is great news because for a long time, you know, standing up those training and assessment ecosystems, they they take a long time if you're gonna if you're gonna try and do it. Now, what's interesting though is the RP training, like we talked about, has historically been underwhelming. Right, the original version okay. of the RP training was not sufficient for okay. what people needed to know in order to prepare themselves, let alone prepare others, right? I mean, it, it, it is, you know, what it is in terms of the previous RP training, uh, it, it wasn't good enough for, for what people needed in the ecosystem. And that caused and continues to cause a lot of issues, I think, in the discourse around CMMC, because the recommendation from the AB and from DOD and from everybody is, you know, engage with RPOs and their RPs in order to, to get, get a better understanding, to get a better understanding, to get an idea of what's going on. And if you were someone who only took the original RP training, 
you weren't really sufficiently prepared. And that was a big sort of black eye on the program, you know, in my perspective for a long time. Now they changed the RP training though. I mean, they, they, they not only overhauled the RP training, they also released what they call the RPA training, which is, you know, even more in-depth version. Honestly, the RPA training and the CCP training, as far as I can tell, very similar, same kind of content, same kind of detail, same kind of everything. Um, just sort of run through the two different organizations. Very, very similar in their level of detail. But you took the new RP training a while ago, right? And and I think that, I think when it came out, you and I were both suspicious of whether Indeed. or not it was going to be better. And to my surprise, you came back and said that you actually thought that it was better. Yeah, I feel like that it made improvements. Like, is it still where it needed to be? Probably not. Um, but that was the first iteration of it. And then another yeah. iteration has come out obviously kind of paving a pathway into this RP, RPA certification or RPA designation within the ecosystem. And, and so I, I feel like people that take the RP and the RPA similar, similarly, I, I think it's a, a more cost effective way for people within the organization. Like yeah. if I'm a dib organization and I want everybody to understand it, I, if I had unlimited money, I would send people to CCP right away. Sure. Right. I, and go there. But if I just want to enlighten my entire organization and I got a big organization that's really not focused on it, but just have to increase the awareness within the organization, yeah. I, I think that it would be enough to, to, to suffice to um, essentially teach the people just enough so that they can just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. You know, I think the, the nice part is, is that because they've overhauled the RP training and come up with RPA, like, I don't know if that's going to who knows if that's how it stays around for years right at this point in the future maybe they consolidate it but that previously it was either you take rp rp training that's not very good in terms of what you need for your holistic understanding or you just wait for ccp to come out one day and that's kind of where we were for a long time and now there isn't really a training option that would steer you in the wrong direction right? There's, there's training that you can take where you probably need to continue to learn more, but taking RP uh, isn't necessarily the same as it was beforehand because the new RP training is very good. Specifically, you know, based off of my, you know, sort of skimming through the training is that the, the new RP training walks through the assessment objectives. And that was something that the previous RP training just didn't really do. And the universal language of these assessments, regardless of who you are, is those assessment objectives in 800-171A. And, and honestly, there is no other training that's really out there that talks about how to evaluate the assessment objectives that correspond to NIST controls. I mean, 853 has existed for a long time. 800-171A has existed for a long time. And other than sort of talking about it, addressing it at a very high level, you know, we've done presentations talking about it at a high level. There really isn't a lot of formalized training that walks you through what those details are, which I find very interesting because the fact that, I mean, RP may not have started out as a thing that people were a very big fan of, but the fact that they're leaning into stepping through the assessment objectives with examples, I mean, that's that's better than any of the other training that's out there, you know, from whatever other standards there are. Yeah. So it, to me, it, it, it appears, you know, like this, right? So you as an organization want your people in your organization to be
be better prepared to defend themselves, right? So you go and you put on this, you host the self-defense class where you bring in somebody that specializes in pe teaching people self-defense mechanisms. That would be like your CCP, right? This person has specialized knowledge, has gone through specialized knowledge of the requirements, and then they're coming to teach a subset of that specialized knowledge to people, which would be RPs, right? Yeah. Now, we're not saying the CCPs are teaching that, but that's kind of like the differentiating factor, right? There's people yeah. that have gone through a self-defense class, and then there's people that can teach a self-defense class. And I think that that's where yeah. we... That, that's where we separate where, where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, I think of. the original RP training would have been the Rex Quando of, of martial <laughs> yeah. arts classes where the, they're just sort of standing there in American flag pants threatening to roundhouse kick people in the face. And, you know, you don't really feel like you could win a street fight. <laughs> Whereas if you <laughs> if you take the new RP training or the RPA or if you decide to take CCP, whichever one. Right. The fact that they all deal with the assessment objectives and understanding them is enough of a change in my opinion that I'm like, it's a net benefit, regardless of which path you decide to take for whatever reason, however they're advertised, as long as there is training out there about the assessment objectives, everybody wins because that is the universal underlying layer reference layer for us to all deal with. Yeah, this is the irony. We didn't really talk about this when we talked about 171A last month, but if you look at 171A and 853A, where it's derived from, right, these assessment and verification procedures for the controls and requirements that get passed to organizations like DOD contractors, right? Mm -hmm. They say that the reason why those verification procedures are important is because you're trying to determine whether the controls are effective. And Correct. effectiveness under the in the universe of NIST means something specific. It means three things. Is the control implemented properly? Is it operating the way I intended it to? And is it producing the desired outcomes? And what's ironic here is that those are the things that assessors are trying to determine by using those verification procedures. Is it implemented? Is it operating in accordance with your policies the way you intend it to? Is it producing the outcomes that are desired as a result of how you've configured everything? Ironically, right? A small business owner, a constrained small business owner that has limited resources also wants to know those three things when they evaluate vendors or consultants or whoever. They sure. want to know, is this implemented right? Is it operating the, the right way? Is it producing what I need to produce? And the same questions that you would use to evaluate those external consultants or providers or vendors or technologies or whatever are the same questions that the assessors want to ask. So. The fact that all of the training in the CMMC ecosystem is converging on those assessment objectives, fine with me, right? The fact that previous training didn't have it was the problem. All the training has it now, so I don't, I don't have any problems with the, the, this trend in available CMMC training. Yeah, anything that increases awareness, anything that increases people's comprehension and, and their competency with what they need to understand, like yeah. obviously, you know, we, we should be in favor for. And, and that's exactly what it is. I, I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said um, that there is a specific level of is this being effective and things like that. That's not the things that is covered in the, in the regular RP training, and not, not yeah. the original RP training, the RP training as it is now the amended yep. version. And those are kind of the speciality things in, in which in a CCP course are, are going to be covered and people are going yeah. to understand. 
I think the CCP course dives into that more because, uh, you know, the, 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 the cruel reality here is effectiveness a lot of times is subjective judgment after a while where it is up to assessor interpretation as to whether or not those things are effective. And so if you don't learn the assessment objectives and sort of make this case that these are effective, they are working in accordance with our policy, they are producing the things that we wanted it to and that we need the controls to produce, then when the assessor shows up and starts asking those questions, you're leaving it up to the judges, right? Which you never, you never want to do that. You want to sort of make this case, which there's a whole universe of things known as assurance cases or making uh, an assurance case in old versions of 853. We can get in that into that probably in a future episode. But the fact that the training is all trending towards assessment objectives is a net positive in my mind. Uh, because that's that's the thing that keeps everybody oriented, uh, you know, on the same page. We all know what to expect. We sort of all are working from the same starting point. So it's good to see I, that I the training ecosystem is crystallizing. The other, you know, big news that they had in their um, town hall was that this ecosystem event is happening uh, in, what, two weeks? In mid-November, I think, by the time I, uh, this recording comes out. It'll actually be uh, a week from recording. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess I probably should check plane tickets because you and I will be there. I don't think we're presenting, but you and I will be there hanging out, which it will be very interesting to see what happens at the ecosystem event because um, how different will it be from the town hall? There's going to be vendor presentations from various sponsors, but I'm interested to know if there's going to be new information put out in this in-person event that isn't, you know, put out in the town hall because you know, what, what new information will there be? I, I, I'm not sure. I'm interested to see the makeup and the composition of the people that attend, right? Is it the people that we see that are asking the questions in, in the town hall that we're going to get to? Uh, is it the people that are more like us that, that talk about this every day that, right. that are really vested in it? Or is it a, a makeup of OSCs? Is it, is it basically, yeah. hey, we've given you this platform in this area to come to where you can ask questions of all of these people that are presenting. You can ask questions of the people that are in charge of the program or whatever it may be. It, it, it'll be very interesting, you know, obviously it being the first one, it'll be very interesting to see what exactly this has to offer. Um, yeah, well, you know, it, it's a good point because the town halls are addressing distinctly different audiences at this point, right? Because in, even in some of the Q&A questions that get submitted during the town hall, people are bringing this up saying, is the Keiko going to have its own sort of training and certification town hall by itself, separate from the AB having their overview of what's going on with the overall ecosystem and certifying C3PAOs and things like that. So you have OSCs who are interested in what's going on. You have people who want to go through training and certification to be assessors. You have C3PAOs that are interested. You've got, uh, you know, the rest of the ecosystem. That's it. So it's, it's it's very uh, it's a it's a very mixed audience in terms of what people are looking for, and I think as we'll get to here in a moment, the types of questions that get submitted in a town hall have a pretty broad range of topics of what people are asking about, which I think is indicative of how different all the perspectives are of people who tune into the town hall. So how that plays out in person, it'll be interesting. You know, we'll definitely in our next episode have a recap of what we what we learned in person. But, um, you know, a DC doubt. in November, right? Beautiful weather, wonderful, 
wonderful time to visit DC. So yeah, you could actually, I mean, that's the DMV weather for you, right? Like you could come here next week, Jacob, and you could land and you'd be, you could be in shorts and be comfortable. And then the next day you probably need a parker because there's sleet and freezing rain happening. It's just DC for you. Pack for everything. Pack accordingly. I'm excited Great. to see you. Yeah. But, you awesome. know, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Just get just get ready to experience all of it. You just be prepared for everything. And then if not, target running. I'll, I'll definitely have to break out my parka that I use here in Southern California all the time. So yeah. So ecosystem summit event is going to happen. Joint surveillance continues to happen, and the assessor ecosystem you know sort of continues to crystallize. Pretty sort of standard fare for the town hall. Now they started doing this several months ago, where they had their rumor control. So segments and mind. uh you know sometimes it's better than others but one of the rumor control uh topics that they brought up during the town hall was whether or not cmmc currently exists in contracts and sort of what the implications are of that and right. and matt travis obviously uh said that cmmc is not currently in contracts the dfars 7021 clause that directs you to get a cmmc certification is not included in DOD contracts, right? Now, beforehand, it was all case-by-case basis during the phased rollout of CMMC 1.0 from the end of 2020 through the end of 2025, the original timeline. When they went through their big review of the program in 2021 and subsequently released their strategic intent of CMMC 2.0 at the end of last year, that is all of the stuff that's going through rulemaking now and getting codified and formalized. They said, we're not putting it in contracts, right? We're waiting for everything to be done. That's part of the reason why they sort of leaned on joint surveillance assessments, right? This sort of uh, collaboration of using uh, what authorities they currently have and availability in order to run assessments in the interim. But overall, CMMC is not included in contracts. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part was a a tidbit that Matt said afterwards, where he said prime contractors uh, are still able to include CMMC in their existing terms and conditions. And this is a point that we've talked about many, many times, right? Yeah, I've I've seen it. Yeah, the DOD's phased rollout, the DOD's moratorium on including CMMC in contracts does not preclude prime contractors from asking their their suppliers and their subcontractors to implement 800-171, to attest to having 800-171, to attest to when they'll be ready to have CMMC. That is something that is that is the business between the prime and the sub or whatever the private business agreement is on the other side of the conversation, right? And even DOD's- when people, so even when people come up and they, they say, you know, I'm getting this um, requirement flow down to me from my prime contractor. Uh, we've heard it, and we've had this conversation. We've had this conversation with Stacy at C- well, I had it with Stacy at CS two. Um, but essentially, they're saying that you know we're having these requirements flow down to us. We thought it wasn't a thing, and realistically, it is a thing because. And the DoD, what is the DoD stance? We're not going to do anything that's going to hinder prime contractors from proactively going out and securing their supply chain themselves. Right. Right. And and that's, it's what's happening. Like, and yeah, and this was, you know, we've got the clip that we'll make sure we put in the show notes where we asked Stacy specifically at CS2DC, do, does the DOD have a mechanism for preventing prime contractors from asking their subs to just be CMMC level two across the board? And her answer is no, no, the DOD does not have a mechanism for preventing that. 
what they hope, her words, what they hope will happen is that if the prime contractors were to ask their supply chains to all be level two, it would be very expensive. And so the market forces of, you know, asking everybody to have elevated requirements will prevent the primes from asking everybody to be level two. And to me, that should not be a, uh, that should not be an answer that gives anyone comfort at all. Because first of all, I don't know any time in the past where the primes have, uh, avoided an opportunity to pass their costs along to the DOD and elevate their rates. Second of all, uh, I just, I don't foresee the primes just discovering a bunch of time and resources and, uh, and workforce who can meticulously dissect their CUI data flows into their supply chain such that they would ask their suppliers to be CMMC level one instead of CMMC level two. We've seen documentation from some of the largest primes out there in their supply chain departments that internally will say, we don't know if or when we're going to send CUI to our downstream suppliers. And we can't wait until the day that we know that they will receive CUI to then ask them to start a 12 to 18 month project of getting certified. So we're going to ask you to get certified now because they're bidding on contracts and projects that they're going to take award of in a year or two or three. And at that time, they need their supply chains to go immediately. So that's why you see this phenomenon of prime saying to, you know, today actually happening right now is when are you going to get CMMC? When are you going to get CMMC? You're going to get CMMC level two, right? And everybody goes and talks to the DOD and they go, well, why am I being asked to get CMMC level two? And the DOD goes, that's between you and the primes. That's right. not our problem. We don't have anything to do with that. Yeah. And so part of that is because, like you said, the task of taking and kind of sorting out, this is where CUI needs to go. This is where CUI isn't going to go. Or CUI went here. We got to get it back so that we can, you know, have you set for a level one. That That's not something that is like, oh, let's just snap our fingers and get it done. That is a long, grueling process. It is yeah. overflowed so much to the point where um, it, it's flown freely. The data flow hasn't been controlled. To, to the point where the cleanup for this, it, it's much easier to protect it all instead of, of trying to go through and clean it up. You know, where's the spill? We don't know. So you know, it's, let's it's just funny, mop right? everything. It's a risk mitigation function, right? I mean, this Correct. is the thing is that the, the large primes are the ones that get put under the magnifying glass the most for getting slapped whenever CUI gets compromised within their supply chains. The language in the 2020 NDAA that led to the CMMC program specifically mentions the large prime contractors and their responsibility for ensuring that their downstream suppliers and subcontractors are using adequate security to protect this data that they are flowing into the supply chain, not yep. DOD. So when you take the perspective of internal counsel at Raytheon or Northrop or Lockheed, right, they're going to go, okay, so we don't know if or when we might need to send CUI to these people. And uh, there is probably going to be an incident inevitably one day. So of course we would ask them to have the minimum standard for dealing with this data because it mitigates the risk of the prime, right? It doesn't really matter to them that it's going to cost their supplier an extra $100,000 or who knows how much money because that's, that's not the calculus that they're dealing with, right? I'm sure that if you were to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, they're all normal people. They would go, yeah, that's really a bad situation for these small businesses, but 
they're looking out for the interests the interest of the corporation. They're not looking out for the interests of their supply chain first or even primarily. You know, it's the yeah. same it's the same problem that you see within the context of a small and medium sized business. The the ability to dissect their data flow and their business process and to try to figure out what's going on with certain data types and whether it's CUI or not is a tremendous undertaking that a lot of times causes companies to say, we're just going to make the entire business in scope for these requirements because it's just too difficult to break out these data flows. And even if we could, it isn't guaranteed that we can re-engineer the way our business operates in order to make stuff out of scope. It's just too much work. Well, as you go up the supply chain to the level of a prime contractor, that problem gets exponentially worse because you're dealing with mountains and mountains of information, but you don't have a, a corresponding workforce or time or money or general resources to deal with the same problem. So you're more likely at the prime or at the DOD program office level to have them just say, it's all CUI. It's all in scope. It's all this. It's the same phenomenon at various levels of the supply chain. Like, like we've talked about before, without remorse, flow down without remorse. That's what, Is yeah. And you've, you've, you've heard this language before in, uh, in it, it was conversations, it's so right? surprising. It's just that like, you have to understand what the implications are if this isn't carried out thoroughly to the way that we need it to be carried out. And, and so as a prime, and this is the prime stocking in your, in, yeah. in your example. Yeah, the prime, it was a contract deliverable or it was contract language that was sent down to the subs. Everybody that was a part of this contract got something and, and basically it was a training. Actually, it was a training. It was the contract deliverable said this and then somebody questioned it, somebody pushed back. And in the training, they were like, all right, we're going to put on this training for you. And they were sitting in the training and the person said to them, these people, you need to flow this down without remorse. Without remorse. And this is, you know, this is probably... Uh... Uh, maybe like a <laughs> a sum it up after dark episode or something like that, but it is it is one of the main points of frustration that yeah I, I don't think remorse that, was the the the, that, the greatest term to use well, in that's, that case well, but it goes, like I have th these are anecdotal examples but I'm not sure that people uh, would disagree that the very large prime contractors um, tend to play both sides of the conversation. Right. So one of the examples that I, I always give is that at a industry event in the Northeast earlier this year, I was moderating a panel that had two uh, folks from small businesses who were DOD contractors, both very aware of the requirements, very yeah, capable of having a, a uh, in-depth conversation of the requirements, two folks from two different large primes, uh, primarily doing work in that area of the country. And Prior to the panel, I did a lot of one-on-one -on -one work with the panelists because moderating a panel such that it's interesting is actually a pretty big endeavor to undertake. So I wanted to get their perspective, figure out where they were coming from so that we could ask good questions and have a good, compelling conversation going because clearly these two factions are at odds a lot of the time. And some of the more candid one-on-one -on -one remarks that I heard from the folks at the Prime diametrically opposed to what they said once they were on stage or what gets said in webinars or, you know, any of that other information. I always, the big contradiction that I always sort of try to nail them on is primes will always say that cybersecurity in their supply chain is a humongous priority. Sometimes they'll even say it's their number one priority. Mm -hmm. And then you'll say, okay, well, if it's your number one priority, and this is something that's keeping you up at night, and the structure of NIST SP-800-171 is not a holistic standard. There are gaps in the standard. 
then what are you going to do to plug the holes in that standard? Are you going to ask your suppliers to do more? Are you going to verify that they're actually implementing? And mm -hmm. inevitably, they say, no, 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 we're going to wait and see what the government does with CMMC. And you're like, but it's your number one. It's your number one priority. It's the thing that keeps you up at night. Why are you waiting for a DOD program to, to come in and fill in the gaps? Unless you're just, you know, you're, you're shifting priorities here. And what your main goal is, is mitigating your own risk, right? You're flowing the requirements down to the supply chain so that you don't get hammered if something bad happens. And unless the DOD makes you add controls and security to the supply chain, you're probably not going to, right? And it's, so it's two sides of the coin too, because as, as the prime contractor, you depend on this supply chain to deliver whatever you're delivering to the government, right? Whatever part of your contract deliverables are there, you've assembled this supply chain, the, the, these subcontractors to carry out the entirety of the mission. They're a piece of the puzzle, right? But on the same token, the small businesses and, and, the, and the subcontractors are saying that we're, we're being handed this stuff and you need us to get this done. So we're not going to do this because yeah. eventually you're going to fund this or do whatever. And we're going to get into that deeper too. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's a bit of a standoff going on, but one side's not backing down at all. Neither side's just, actually backing I, you down. You know, in, in, in this period of waiting for the CMMC rule, right, we still mm -hmm. continue to see on a weekly basis, new questionnaires, new attestations, new uh, you know, correspondence from large primes to their subs saying, what are you doing with CMMC? When are you going to have CMMC? What's going on with 171? You're doing all the things you're supposed to do, right? And mm -hmm. the number of webinars and the, the amount of training that gets put out from the large primes is non-existent. It's non-existent. And so you're just like, man, it doesn't take a lot for, for you to look at and say, I don't know if it's because they're in a difficult situation and they're trying to mitigate risk and balance demands of the DOD and maintain their supply chain, but the primes are in a very difficult position. And so it becomes very easy to sort of beat up on what they do and say and what they don't do and don't say, because, you know, they're flowing these requirements in the supply chain and it's causing a lot of problems. And then they sort of turn around and point to the DOD. And then you ask the DOD and say, Hey, the primes are asking us to have level two requirements. Is there anything you can do to stop that? And they go, it's up to them. It's up to the primes. Correct. And then we, we just do this. It's just the pointing Spider-Man meme over and over again between the DOD and the primes and small businesses get left in the lurch. Yeah. So, and, and that's one thing that they emphasize. The requirements are being flowed down at the discretion of the prime contractors, not right. at the direction of the DOD. That's an important thing to throw in there. Their discretion is we want to be secure now. We want to be proactive on this. The direction of the DOD is, is we're figuring this thing out and it's going to appear in contracts and we're not going to get caught blindsided as a prime contractor. You yeah. guys are a part of our, our chain. Let's, let's figure this out. And this is, you know, one of the big elements of CMMC 2.0, one of the big changes, the alleged changes to CMMC 2.0 was that the timeline had changed and there was going to be a phased rollout. Now, what we've heard and what we expect is going to be in the upcoming rule in 2023 is that the phased rollout will be from 2023 to 2026. So the mm -hmm. DOD will, will insert the clause that says, go get a CMMC certification into contracts in a phased manner between 2023 and 2026. Now, remember, that is the DOD inserting it into their contracts. But the primes are saying, go get CMMC certified right now. So the phased rollout has no effect on the primes asking their subs to get CMMC certified. That is, that is, it is true 
that the DoD is going to have a phased rollout. It is also true that the primes acting in their own self-interest are going to demand CMMC certifications immediately. I mean, they're already asking for people to get them now, and it's basically impossible to get one now. So everybody thinks that they're going to be in the 2026 group that's in the phased rollout. Meanwhile, the Lockheeds and the Raytheons and the Northrop's of the world are going to say on day one when the rule comes out, okay, go get certified. Right. It, and, well, there's yeah, it, the, and there's nothing the DOD can do to stop it. And, and so you would think that if I was in charge of, uh, you know, a large prime contractor, right. And I had this entire supply chain that I, I needed to look after to make sure that I deliver my mission, um, that I would want to know ahead of time, far enough ahead of time to make whatever concessions are necessary in case one of those pieces of my chain that I need is going to disappear. Right. It, it is not going to participate in this, it, whatever may tend to happen. You can see that this proactive approach is definitely self-serving, right? It's 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 to which the point I mean, where it's not you know it's understandable. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? Yeah, there's it's, nothing it's wrong with it at all. It's it's perfectly understandable when we say that they're acting in their own self-interest. The problem is, is that I would say when we go to events like Gold Coast and we deal with folks in the in the general environment that are dealing with CMMC, there's a there's an underlying expectation that the DoD and or the primes are going to have this sort of sense of altruism and mercy and they're going to minimize the flow of cui into these organizations and i just don't right. necessarily think that that's going to occur even if the people individually at the primes and at the dod would like that to happen and understand why it's a good thing i just don't think that the behavior of the system is going to have that happen as a rule i think that's a a, mm -hmm. a fleeting exception of what to expect in terms of what's going on we'll have the clip from stacy but the thing to remember here is you know, there's a lot of people that think they're not going to be CMMC level two. And there's a lot of primes out there who are going to ask for CMMC level two by default. So, yep. you know, maybe go back and double check what your customer is expecting of what's going to happen, because uh, now's the time to find out. Because if things are, um, if, if getting CMMC level two is not in the budget or not in your capabilities or sort of not in your plans, because you're hoping that you're going to get CMMC level one, then there's going to be some serious strategic planning that needs to occur about what you're going to do about that situation. Because I just think that the level of CUI overmarking and the level of overscoping requirements and the high watermarking to protect the self-interest of the primes and mitigate their risk is going to mean that pretty much everybody is going to need CMMC level two rather than level one. It'll be, that will be the rule rather than the exception. I agree. So, you know, obviously that leaves a lot of questions and, and, and you can go back and forth with questions about that. One of the things from the town hall, and, and this is probably the first town hall that I really spent more time lingering in the, the questions portion of the town hall, right? You, they have a little section, the Q&A section. Usually what happens is, is at the end of the town hall, they're like, oh, we're out of time and we get to one or two of them or they're specified they answer one so they answer it, right? Um, and, and there leave some that are answered that they give great answers and then some that are unanswered. Right. And, and I wanted to take some time and we wanted to take some time, obviously, and, and, and kind of dig into those. And, and a couple of the interesting ones came up that, that we were talking about. And why don't you go into that some more, Jacob? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think, and I would love it if people give us feedback on this, if they want, if they're interested in us spending time, uh, wrestling with the questions that get submitted in the town hall that for whatever reason don't necessarily get addressed. So we'll, we'll take a stab at it for, for this episode, but I think it's, I think it's probably valuable. So 
uh, among the questions that were answered, right, uh, that, mm -hmm. that had some amount of words applied to the question, right, the one that jumped to me was uh, somebody asked the 800-171 Appendix E NFO controls are not specifically addressed in CMMC documentation. How does that play into a CMMC assessment? And the answer that was given was uh, not good. They basically said, well, the NFO controls are hidden in CMMC language. Yep. Like it's a riddle, right? Like it's Where's a scavenger Waldo, right? hunt. Yep. Like all, all I do is talk about the importance of NFO controls. I mean, the is we'll talk about coming up, you know, just today, NIST released their summary of comments submitted to 800-171 for the upcoming revision. And the overwhelming topic, the overwhelming topic was dealing with these NFO controls. It's all I talk about. And somebody said, hey, okay, like NFO controls exist. So how does this play into an assessment? Just to clarify for everybody, right? The 800-171 standard is the set of requirements that's being assessed by the CMMC program by and large. CMMC level one is a small subset of requirements. CMMC level three is an additional set of enhancements to 171. The center of gravity, the essence of CMMC, the lion's share of all of what we're talking about runs right through 800-171. So understanding 800-171 and its structure and development lets you understand the CMMC program overall. 800-171 is a derivative of a larger standard known as 853, specifically mm -hmm. the moderate baseline selection of controls out of the 853 catalog were uh, dissected and pulled apart and tailored down into a much smaller subset, which we now call 800-171. The process of going from the 262 853 controls down to the much smaller subset of 800-171 requirements uh, occurred by NIST doing what was called tailoring, making certain assumptions about what was in place so that they could take those requirements out of the main body. Now, this causes a huge problem because the intent of NIST was to make this as non-bureaucratic as possible, to make it as lightweight and high level as possible so that you don't get weighed down with the heavy detail of 853 controls because you already are a business that is operating an information system, dealing with data flow, interested in protecting your own sensitive data. All of these things already exist. You're not starting from scratch. So mm -hmm. you don't need all of the detail that exists in 853 to tell you how to start from scratch. Well, that caused a huge problem because as we know, when you start to require people in the industrial base and other supply chain sectors, to implement 800-171, they all go, we don't have any of that stuff in place. We don't have, you know, all of these sort of precursor basics in place. So you're asking us to sort of uh, start on third base and, you know, we haven't even swung at the pitch yet effectively. Okay. So the NFO controls are a specific subset of controls that are documented in the back of 800-171 in Appendix E. And these are all of the things that NIST feels represent a more holistic approach to an overall information security program, but that they assume are already implemented and therefore don't need to be specified. For instance, all of the policy and procedure controls, right, that NIST would 
normally say you 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 have to have policy and procedure controls because one of the main things that you're doing when you try to verify a control implementation is saying is it operating in accordance with what i want to have happen is it operating in accordance with our management decisions that we've documented in organizational policy if you don't have organizational policy documented then you don't know if the control is operating the way you intended it to it's operating mm-hmm. according to the way the vendor told you to, it's operating according to defaults. Like what is it? Why, why is that control functionality in place? Why are you spending money on this security control and this security functionality? If it doesn't map back to something that you want to have happen, which is normally documented in policy. So none of the policy and procedure controls are specified in 800-171. None of the management of outsourced external providers is specified in 800-171, and this causes a whole range of problems because 75% of the industrial base are small businesses, and most small businesses outsource their IT and or security function. So if you built a set of controls that says, uh, we assume that if you outsourced these controls, of course you would have done something to manage the terms and conditions, the, the SLAs that you have with your managed service provider and your IT, uh, your outsourced IT, of course you would have done that. Like you wouldn't have signed a contract for an outsourced group of people to have administrative and security access into your organization without having controlled that interface, right? You know, from NIST perspective, of course that makes sense. Turns out that's not actually true at all. And so when an assessor shows up and you are starting on third base, they have to ask you for a bunch of information that isn't specified as a requirement, but you can't necessarily evaluate the controls without. So for instance, part of the reason why all of this training converging on assessment objectives is so important is that every assessment objective follows the same pattern, right? The the very Mm -hmm. beginning of an assessment objective has some sort of policy check. They're going to make sure that some parameter was defined or documented or specified or written down somewhere in some form of documentation or policy, the rest of the assessment procedure is evaluating whether or not the functionality matches what you've documented. So if you don't have the documentation, then you don't know what you're assessing against. And so the assessment can't happen. That's a huge problem because documentation is not a specified requirement. So what ends up happening is CMMC assessors show up and they go, okay, we're here to evaluate your your the functionality of your control environment. Show us your policies. And people go, well, we don't have policies. And they go, well, then what is your control environment doing? This is so. This is a hill that I think since the day that we met, this is a hill that I've been standing on. Right? I personally was taught in college. <laughs> okay, I personally was taught in college that it is absolutely asinine for you to set up any kind of reoccurring process or to establish any sort of business processes without documentation to support the continuing execution of those processes, right? It's the same example here. These are business processes that need to be intertwined in. They just happen to deal with cybersecurity or or tasks that you need to perform. And, And so what happened was, is that out of all the the good that may have come from switching from 1.0 to 2.0, what happened was is that 
what they did was remove the requirement to assess how good your policies and procedures were or how effective the policies and procedures were. And people mistook, uh, mistakenly thought that that meant that they don't need to exist any longer. And that's not the case. Right. Th and you know, this all. is like, it, it's, it, this is the part of the, this is the craziness. Right. And so I guess we can jump into this because as of today, when we started this conversation, just this morning, NIST released their summary of sure. the pre-draft comments on the upcoming revision to 800-171. We sure. expect now, according to NIST, that the initial public draft of the third revision to 800-171, what will be the standard that CMMC assesses, will be out in late spring of 2023. And to my surprise, all of the comments that were submitted to NIST converge on a, a, a common topic that these NFO controls, these assumptions about what companies have in place are incorrect and they mm -hmm. need to be reversed. And this is a huge problem. You need them for assessment. You need them to understand the requirements. You need them to implement. You need those precursors in order to effectively implement and assess and verify these controls. The problem is, is that if we take the 62 controls out of Appendix E and put them back into the main body of requirements, you're going to almost double the size of 800-171 and therefore double the size of CMMC Level 2 requirements. The problem is, again, if they what? were already assumed to be there and you yeah. can't evaluate the controls without them, does taking them out of Appendix E and putting them in the main body actually represent new controls? Like... If you couldn't have evaluated the control environment without having policies and procedures, then does taking the policy and procedure assumption out of the back and putting it into the main body actually represent a new requirement? Or will it just be perceived as a new requirement because people didn't know that that's how the controls worked? Right. Like people were supposed to perceive that this is supposed to be satisfied without specification, right? Yeah, that's and the, I think famous, that, the famous phrase now, for an NFO control. I, I do want to play yeah. devil's advocate for a minute, right? I, kind of thinking about this, right? There are situations where organizations within the supply chain are now being introduced that there is no 7012 requirement in their contracts, right? Yeah. It hasn't been flowed down to them, but all of a sudden now it's being introduced. So now the concepts of NFOs are, they're, they're actually foreign to them. The, the concept of 800 sure. is actually foreign to them. Well, so these are where you can argue that this is a new requirement. This is new well, cost. For somebody new that doesn't, well, and, and this there's is the, new the, and then there's new to me, right? This is the, the yeah. <laughs> this is the philosophical debate, right? Because when NIST says, okay, you've got private sector organizations that are operating information systems that mm -hmm. have sensitive data, whether it's their own data or whether it's external sensitive data that they're dealing with for whatever reason, they clearly would have thought about their architecture, they would have thought about their backups, they would have thought about their incident response, they would have thought about their external IT service providers, they would have thought about their policy and procedure, they would have done all of these things. Therefore, we're not going to include it in the document because then the document's going to be 300 pages long. You're just going to deal with the entire 853 moderate baseline. As it turns out, by and large, most companies don't document anything and they don't really think about their external providers and they don't really uh, meet this idea of a rational self-interested um, organization operating in a vacuum. And that implies that the standard needs to 
represent all of those issues. Mm -hmm. And if a company is already doing those things, then they would just fly right through and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. By, by having these assumptions baked into the underlying structure of 800-171, you are assuming a pre-existing level of maturity. You're, you're assuming that all of these things are in place. I, this is something that we've talked about before, but the great irony of CMMC is that it is allegedly a maturity model that is seeking to assess a set of requirements built on the assumption of pre-existing maturity. You know, it always drove me nuts when CMMC, uh, CMMC 1.0 came out and the government would say, oh, just start with 800-171. The real answer is you should start with the NFO controls because Correct. those are the controls that NIST thought you had in place before you got to the requirements in the main body of 800-171. And so now, now we, we're dealing with a very interesting predicament. Because if you remember, CMMC 1.0 had what they called the Delta 20, right? And they had yeah. these process maturity requirements that you mentioned earlier. And they said, well, you've got 800-171, and then you've got process maturity on the side, and you've got the Delta 20 on top. The entire basis, and we'll link the blog post from the people who wrote CMMC at Carnegie Mellon, the entire basis and rationale for the process maturity requirements and the Delta 20 is that they were plugging the holes that were created by tailoring 853 down to 800 mm -hmm. The Delta 20 and the process maturity requirements are the NFO controls in the back of 800 Appendix E. And we went from 1.0 to 2.0 and got rid of the process maturity requirements and got rid of the Delta 20. And now here we are two years later with NIST going, geez, that's a really good point. All of these assumptions were not correct. And we're going to have to unwind the tailoring and bring those controls back in, which is exactly what the Delta 20 did. I mean, it's, it's the exact same thing. So moving from 1.0 to 2.0 and removing the Delta 20, and I don't know if you're going to agree with me that, with this or not, but what it did was it removed the sustainability and the recoverability of, of the organizations. And, and, and that's 100%. I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Where are the backups and where are the things that are going to sustain the processes? Instead, we're having yeah. these people implement these controls, whatever the 320 requirements, right? They're going through to meet this specification. And they're going to receive their certification, you know, if they do it successfully, right? But what we're forgetting about is that that's triennial. So every three years, you're going to get reassessed. But every year, you got to sign and you have to attest that we are still continuing these processes. Right. Well, what happens when the employees turn over? What happens when something happens right. and you get a new technology? What what documents are going to fuel the continuation of these processes? Like you said, the breakdown of the verifications, the definitions, the, the yeah. whatever it may be. And, and, and that's where the biggest hole right now exists is that this is great. We're getting all these people ramped up and they're going to get to this finish line, right? But once yeah. they get to the finish line, what's going to happen? What, did we just spend a lot of money just to sit here? Yeah. I mean, the, the circular nature of, of the Delta 20, the process maturity requirements, and then the NFO controls and 171 is really the crux of, in my opinion, the, the paradox that we all face because people don't know where to start. They should start with the controls that aren't specified. And that's of, not really something. I got angry there. You. Sorry about that, buddy. Yeah. And that's not really, you know, it's not really something that you can hold somebody to. And so as a result, the only option you have is to bring them back into the standard. But that increases the size of the standard, makes it more burdensome, more complex. 
but you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a huge mess. And so the thing that people need to, to, to think about is NIST is wrestling with this question right now. I mean, when Ron Ross this morning posted the summary of their comments, he said, there are some big decisions ahead for what needs to happen and what happens with 800-171 Rev3 in the spring will be absolutely the most pivotal decision for what happens in the feel and look of CMMC because CMMC is the one that's evaluating those requirements. CMMC is not in the mm-hmm. driver's seat, right? So if NIST decides to leave their assumptions in place in order to keep the, the control set very small, then you sort of kick the ladder out away from companies that don't know how to get to those goals. If you tailor all of it back in, then you sort of overwhelm them with the amount of things that were actually supposed to be, you know, having been done all along. So I don't know how NIST is going to thread that needle. When DOD tried to thread the needle with CMMC 1.0, they got smashed for it. You know, maybe because it's NIST, people will sort of be more uh, accommodating to what their to their their rationale and their philosophy. But it's the same problem that DOD tried to deal with in 1.0, just with a different organization. So I don't really know how that's going to play out. For the most part, though, to get back to that main question, how do the yeah. NFO controls play into an assessment? Here's the bottom line. You can't pass an assessment if you don't have documented policies and procedures. Correct. And policies and procedures are an NFO control, which begs the question, what other NFO controls could you not pass an assessment with? The fact that you don't have meaningful controls over the interface between your outsourced service provider and your control environment is something that you're going to be asked about. Do you have a shared responsibility matrix? Do you have a body of evidence? How do you know that your outsourced service provider, how do you know that Summit 7 is actually doing the things that you have paid them to do? For a company that gets full MSP services from an outsourced provider like us, upwards Mm -hmm. of 60 to 70% of the questions in an assessment are going to be answered by us. They're going to be answered by the outsourced IT provider. And there is a control in Appendix E, it's known as SA9, that specifically deals with how are you documenting and controlling this relationship between you and your outsourced provider for implementing your requirements to protect government data? So should that control be part of the main body? I think so. So this, it's kind of funny that you started there with like um, how, or, or it's kind of funny to think about how this particular question plays into the next question that, that we're yeah. going to discuss. And, and the reason why is because kind of controlling that 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 part of your outsur- your, your external service providers and things like that. A lot of the questions now are focused around the FedRAMP, FedRAMP moderate requirements, the certification requirements for managed service providers, oh, cloud man. service providers, and et cetera, right? So, so bear with me, bro. All right, bear with me. I'm, I'm, I'm Don't you think that if I effectively went through and controlled my data flow, which is an 800-171 requirement, and I effectively followed the NFO controls and I controlled my external service providers and the communications that we have back and forth, don't you think that I could effectively um, kind of sway the way that my service provider has to adhere to these things? Yeah. Does that make absolutely. sense? Right? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like is... controlling your data flow. If I don't let the data go to them, I don't have to worry about if they have the certification. Right. I just have to make sure that they're doing the things that are applicable to the services that I'm contracting them for right. that shared responsibility model, make sure that that's laid out and, and they're doing ABCDEFG. Right. These are the things I pay you right. for. 
not worrying about the rest of the stuff, not worrying about if well, they're FedRAMP certified and this or whatever, is, maybe. And this is the problem, right? Is that this, this, you know, this has been a big debate, right? When the CMMC cap, the the assessment process guide <sighs> came out, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of words in there that talk about requirements for managed service providers needing to be FedRAMP certified. And they keep saying, oh, MSPs aren't defined, but cloud service providers are, and they're all mm -hmm. external connections. Therefore, MSPs have the same requirements as cloud service providers. And you're like, okay, this is a problem that stems from Appendix E, because this is not a problem if the SA family of controls is included in the main body, right? Agree. Agree. And, and here, here's the real brain burner, right? CMMC assesses 800-171. 800-171 is a standard in its, in its entirety. The appendices mean something to the nature of the specified requirements. But when you reskin the requirements under CMMC, the CMMC documentation does not include Appendix E. So if you only ever read CMMC documentation, you would have no idea that there was a whole it list exists. of assumptions Agreed. that needed to, to exist, specifically SA9, which, which outlines through the base control and various control enhancements to SA9, how you are managing your external service providers, not just your cloud service providers. We've we've done this weird sort of, we've, we're trying to reverse engineer our way into the SA family of 853 controls by ignoring the fact that they were tailored out to begin with. And it creates all kinds of crazy mutated situations that, that drive everybody nuts. This is one reason why I think that NIST is going to tailor the controls into the main body of the standard, because you get situations like we have right now where people say, well, you're an MSP, you do outsourced IT services, you need to be FedRAMP moderate certified, which is absolutely insane. So if there was a counter, all right, and, and the entire time that we've known one another, if there was a counter for the amount of times that in conversation we've discussed SA9, I think we would be, <laughs> it'd be congratulations, you're the millionth customer, right? I think, <laughs> I, 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 I think that it plays a huge role in this entire thing, like you just stated. And, and you often say that the best way to read a requirement is from what? The back to the front, I, right? I, In my opinion, one of the best ways to read NIST publications in general and their, yeah. and their control frameworks is from back to front and from bottom up. Specifically, yeah. a lot of the... Uh, helpful information is included in footnotes at the bottom of each page. And a lot of the most uh, salient and clear information is included in their appendices. So if okay. you open 853, uh, especially current versions, and you start from cover to cover, uh, it's not as good of a representation of what's going on than as if you were to start in the back. 800-171 is a good example. If you read Appendix E, you're like, man, they made a bunch of assumptions about what was supposed to be in place. And the the requirements in 800-171 are supposed to be high-level goals. They're supposed to be the, the capability of a system, not a very specific requirement. I mean, you'd be crazy to say we should start with uh, 3.1.1 at the front of the access control family as a point of understanding the requirements, implementing the requirements, assessing the requirements, mm -hmm. you should be starting in the back of the document and saying, do you have any assurance over 
your relationship with your outsourced IT provider? Yes or no? If the answer is no, you're not going to do very well in your assessment. Do you have any documented policy and procedure over what is going on in your control environment? Yes or no? If the answer is no, there's nothing to assess because mm -hmm. we don't have a reference point to know if we are assessing. Part of the reason why they say these are assessments rather than audits is because they're assessing you against the parameters that you set within the controls rather than the parameters that are set for you within the controls. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like if they say, 100%. hey, how often do you test your backups? And you tell them uh, every month and you're like, is that how, how, is that real? Is that true? Like, is that documented or defined anywhere? Or did you just did we just say that, you know, as as it's sort of occurring? But to get back to the FedRAMP thing, you know, this is why I was saying earlier I was handing out hard copies of 853 to all the trick-or-treaters. Smart move. Under now now that we're this far in this conversation, great move. Great gotta bring move. it back, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm sure all these kids start them young. And then, yeah, you have to because start young. I think a lot of people would have benefited from a move like that of me handing out 853 when they were children because FedRAMP is 853. Under the hood, it, it is 853. 171 is a derivative of 853, right? They're the same controls. They're the same thing under the hood. You're like the family at Christmas that gives out the fruitcakes. Like, fruitcakes, you know I mean? pennies, yeah, 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 of course, right? I don't think we're going to get any trick-or-treaters next year, but we <laughs> will slowly create a better understanding of the GRC who knows? system over time. Maybe they'll have better CP capabilities. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. You know? You could, yeah, I mean, it, there's all sorts of second-order effects. But the, to get to the this question about, um, you know, what's going on with FedRAM Moderate. We talked about the cap earlier, the assessment process guide. Mm -hmm. And man, um, what a frustrating document, right? So the, the cap as it exists, it exists in a, a small collection of documents that would round out everything that you need to understand within CMMC. So we have the CMMC model documentation. We have the CMMC assessment guide, which are all the assessment objectives that you need to go through mm -hmm. to verify your requirements. The it's all 800-171, 171A under the hood, but that's what CMMC calls those documents. Right. Then you have something called the CMMC assessment process guide or the CAP. And the CAP is supposed to document what's going on with the steps and phases of a CMMC assessment. When, you know, when are we doing scheduling? What's the first phase? How are we establishing agreements? How are we establishing scoping, which uses the CMMC scoping guide to walk mm -hmm. through just sort of how the structure and life cycle of a CMMC assessment will play out. And people had been waiting for the CMMC assessment process guide for a really long time. And when it came out, there's this section in the CMMC assessment process guide that says external service providers like managed IT providers and managed security providers need to have a FedRAMP certification, which is normally a certification reserved for cloud service providers. And they mix up these definitions seemingly arbitrarily, and it caused a lot of people to be very upset, which then caused the AB to sort of walk back this document and say, well, uh, and this is what Matt said on this latest town hall. He said, well, this isn't policy. We don't, we're the AB, we're not the DOD. So we're not a policy setting organization. This is just, uh, what did he say? This is our, 
our best understanding of DOD's current position. And so that opens a whole can of worms, right? Because the AB is not involved in CMMC rulemaking. So is this what they've heard? Did they have information about what's in the rule and they're sort of previewing what's coming around the corner? Is this just something that came up in conversations between DOD and the AB over time and has no basis in what we expect to exist in the rule or not? Was this mm -hmm. an idea that the AB cooked up on their own and said, this is what we think they're going to say? Like, we don't know what where the 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 shoe is going to drop exactly on this situation but what so, we do know is a FedRAMP certification for most external service providers is going to nuke MSPs from orbit I, yeah I, yeah that's it's a that's a huge undertaking not only financially but the, the time constraints that's attached to it is it's huge millions i mean it's yeah. it's yeah, at, at the very least, it's a million bucks, right? And I think that most most IT providers out there working with small companies that service the DoD are that is rightfully so not something they're considering because they're not the people that normally need a FedRAMP certification. So you, you said that, that that Matt had said that Matt, Matt Travis had said that this is the uh, the best understanding of the DoD's current position, right? Now, with that being said, isn't wasn't part of the process the reason why the cap took so long to get released is because it was with DOD getting yeah. questions asked, See, of this it, is, getting this is modifications weird, taken. Yeah. This is weird. And what do you mean? It's the, the best understanding. They, didn't they tell yeah. you what they're understanding, how they're feeling? Right. Like, well, yeah. and this is this is what's so frustrating about it is because we were exactly like you said, we were waiting on the cap for months and months because mm -hmm. it was going back and forth between the AB and the DOD. The cap mm -hmm. comes out. And starts to have uh, some really crazy interpretations of what should be required for external mm. service providers, which will be very impactful for the viability of a lot of companies to meet CMMC certifications. And then the AB says, well, this is just what we think the DOD is going to say. What I wish would have happened is they use two different font colors. You use blue for what the DOD said, and you use red for what the AB said, because you're saying this is not, you're not a, and they're, they're right. The AB does not set policy, right? They foster and accredit the ecosystem and the training environment of what's going on. The DOD is the one that sets the policy. So where's the line here between what's going on? I mean, the reason why this FedRAMP thing keeps coming up goes back to the olden days of the development of DFAR 7012. The line is, if you put CUI in the cloud, then it has to be a FedRAMP moderate certification. The problem is, is especially at the time, 2016, pre-2016, FedRAMP was even less accessible to folks, especially small businesses in the supply chain who'd be dealing with CUI. I mean, it's still not very accessible. It wasn't at all accessible back then. So the, the, the concession that they made was, well, if you put CUI in the cloud, it has to be FedRAMP moderate certified. But since you can't do it, just make sure that it's equivalent to FedRAMP moderate. And they never said what equivalent meant. So we have CUI in SaaS applications. We've got mm -hmm. CUI in ERP applications in the cloud. We've got CUI being stored and processed and transmitted in webmail and all kinds of cloud mm -hmm. environments. And most of them are not equivalent to FedRAMP moderate. 
and there are they're never going to be. And so what what are we going to do here in terms of defining equivalency with FedRAMP? The other wrinkle being you have an outsourced IT service provider like mm -hmm. Summit 7 and they right. have this big interface into your organization. So we have 171 for an on-prem network. We've got FedRAMP for a cloud network, and we don't have anything that is a subset of requirements that deals with this gray space. So is the cap saying the DOD is just going to default and say, do FedRAMP? Is, is, are they going to say, do FedRAMP equivalent and continue to not define it? Like, there's a lot of questions here about how that's going to play out. Agree. So we could probably harp on that all day, right? All but day. Those that that was just our our back and forth about the questions that the that AB answered. answered. Yeah. Now let's talk about the ones that weren't answered. These, right. These are this the fun ones, 15 right? Min, Fifteen minutes of Q and A is not. Is, is, not it's a, never. For, gonna, it doesn't work on the town hall. It doesn't work on any webinar, right? You're distributing information into an ecosystem, right? And, and so the the thought process is is that everybody that really has stake within this program probably should be attending this, and this is the chance where they can. Get the knowledge I need to know, like not, you know, specific knowledge into the requirements, but get the knowledge you need to know into the program, the updates, what's happening, right? And then to ask the questions that are maybe bothering them the most, right? And unfortunately, what we see is, is that there are blocks that are assigned to certain things and the block for question and answers usually is 15 minutes, but it's also the first one that gets a little chopped off of it when somebody runs over or if something yeah. starts later. I mean, that's a pretty common, that's a pretty common thing yeah. across a lot of webinars. There's never enough time for Q and a, but yeah, for those ones, NFO controls and FedRAMP moderate, you know, implications across the cap, those are huge topics that are going to be extremely impactful for what's going on. And, but there were interesting questions, like you said, that were unanswered. You know, the one that I don't really know if there is a good answer is the first one that popped up that said, what if what's in writing at DOD and NIST regarding the use of cloud services like FedRAMP moderate, FedRAMP mm -hmm. moderate equivalent, what if what's in writing at DOD and NIST regarding the use of cloud services bears no resemblance to where the market has moved for small and medium businesses in the defense industrial base? I mean, this is a theoretical, uh, this is a very open-ended question, right? Is this a rhetorical question? What what happens if NIST decisions about changes to 171 and DOD decisions about FedRAMP do not line up with where the market has moved for small and medium businesses? And so what exactly does that mean, where the market has moved? I'm not sure because they didn't, they didn't clarify. What I'm assuming okay. what they're saying is, is that the tone and the trend of changes to 171 and the tone and trend of requiring FedRAMP and higher level, uh, higher amounts of controls and higher fidelity of controls for the use of cloud services doesn't line up with the way that most businesses operate in terms of using webmail and cloud ERP applications and other SaaS applications. And there's data flow and CUI just going everywhere. And that is just not part of how the market has evolved over time for businesses to operate. So what will happen? And I mean, this is the this is the ultimate question. What will happen when it turns out that DOD policy and requirements set in standards like 171 don't line up with the way that the marketplace has evolved over time? Some people think that the DOD is going to uh, waffle on their policy decisions and that the NIST requirements would somehow regress and become smaller 
and accommodate what's going on in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's true because I don't it, either. Because it's everybody knows that these requirements are not kind to the way that the ecosystem has evolved currently. And everybody knows that they're very expensive and complex and burdensome. And that for the most part, companies struggle with trying to get there, especially if they're not doing it with the help of organizations that specialize in this kind of work. It's not, it's not a walk in the park. It takes a lot of effort and thought in order to make it through the requirements. So what will happen? And so this is, you know, one of the biggest things that we had the feedback from last episode was when we started breaking up and, and digging into certain clips, right? One of the biggest things that came into the argument was, is that this isn't appropriate for small businesses. This isn't achievable for small businesses. This is a huge burden for small businesses. These are the things that are going on. We need the DOD to fund. This is the DOD's data, right? They need to pay to protect this. Um, the, The DOD wants me to get secure. They need to pay to protect this. And one of the things that you've said, and that I kind of stand, you know, besides, is that haven't they been writing these loan checks? Man, this is a, this is a, it's a, this is a, uh, it's a loaded. Sorry, this is a difficult onion yeah. to peel back, right? Because, because you don't want to sound like you're not um, empathetic. You're not sympathetic to what's course, going on. Of course, because the, like we we said earlier, and, and like I stated earlier, there are some organizations that are being hit blindsided with this, right? For sure. All of a sudden, I have these requirements, but there, in the same token, for everyone that I have in my left hand that is being blindsided there's three in my right hand that just chose to ignore it or didn't understand it or didn't well, really I mean, this grasp is the thing it. Is, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the requirements weren't necessarily implemented. I mean, there's a strong case to be made that although the contract clauses existed and companies attested to them for years and years, the DOD didn't care. The DOD didn't ask. The DOD didn't use it as selection criteria. The DOD right. could care less whether as long as the job was getting done and the contract was being like, it isn't like when these requirements were written and, you know, 7012, as we know it today in 2016 was formalized that the world was somehow fundamentally different. The same people who wrote the standard then are the same people who work at DOD and NIST and NARA today. And self-attestation didn't work then. And it doesn't work now. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, they specifically said, that they, I think it was in 2018, they did an industry event and they said, we don't want to come and assess people unless we absolutely have to. We don't want to create a cottage industry. We don't want to create an ecosystem and an environment that is just focused on assessment for assessment's sake. We don't want to do that. It's one of the most interesting quotes from them, I think, because in 2018, people were asking them, they were saying, you're going to verify that people are actually implementing these requirements, right? Like, you're not just going to take their word for it. I mean, this was at an industry event that I think NIST was hosting. I'll see if I can find the 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 the, the, the clip for it, and we'll put it in the show notes. But somebody in the audience asked them, they're like, you're going to verify that these are actually implemented, right? Because just taking people's word for it is, that's not a good idea. And they said, we absolutely do not want to come and assess and verify these requirements unless we absolutely have to. And so when people say, oh, CMMC is a fad or CMMC is going away or it's going to do this, like the DOD said, we do not want to do this unless we have to. And there's all this work that's been put in and all these findings and all this evidence that goes to show that they have to come and verify the requirements. So when you start to, you know, I say this all the time, but the further you zoom the camera out and look back at what they've said before compared to what they say now, 
if people only orient their um, their opinions about the fate of the CMMC program based off what's happened in the last two years, you're missing a lot of prerequisite information that that makes it a little bit more obvious that the program is you know that the program is inevitable. But when it comes down to the funding issue, right? Right. This is something that this is this is the elephant in the room, right? Whether whether 171 increases, decreases, stays the same, whether everybody's getting an assessment or just, you know, whatever, level two, it all comes down to who's paying for it. The trap is that if people had attested to implementing their requirements, then their overhead rate was assumed to incorporate the cost of implementing and maintaining and sustaining their control environment. So when CMMC popped up and people said, we're going to come check your work, they go, I can't afford it because if I raise my overhead rate, then I will lose a bunch of work. And DUD says, well, we've got this pile of attestations here from you over the last few years that said you did implement them. Mm -hmm. This was actually something towards the end of Kitty Arrington's time at DOD that she said on a webinar that really sticks out in my mind. And I wish the DOD then and now would explain this a little bit better. She got asked this question about funding and self-attestation. And she said, I wish I could pay you for the work that you said that you did. And I thought that was very interesting because she was basically saying, I understand that it costs money. I want to give you funding for all of these requirements, uh, but I can't. Like literally the government cannot give you, or at least the DOD cannot give you the money for something that you already claimed to have been doing. Now, why that occurred, whether it was the right thing to have occurred is sort of besides the point, because that just is the situation that we're in. However, what we're hearing, lots of rumors flying around out there about possible funding for mm -hmm. these requirements. Now, details are scarce. Nothing is confirmed. This is a podcast, right? So we're just speculating. Right. But it's very interesting to hear rumors that appropriations committees in Congress, armed services committees, mm -hmm. homeland security committees, small business committees are mulling the idea of funding appropriations for dealing with cybersecurity requirements up to and including dealing with CMMC. And this is something that the Federal Register talks about when they documented their rationale for the rule in 2016 that gave mm -hmm. us DFAR 7012 as we know it today. They go, listen, this is just a rule that establishes a contract clause. Mm -hmm. There is no funding appropriation with this contract clause, just like there isn't an inherent funding appropriation with any DFARS contract clause. If you mm -hmm. want a funding appropriation, you have to go talk to the appropriators. You have to go talk to congressional committees that are in charge of the money, if they want to attach funding to it, that's up to them. But the job of the DOD creating the clause is sort of distinct from the job of providing funding. And that's a very interesting concept because what if it turns out that in 2023, some piece of legislation gets passed and a bunch of money falls from the sky? I mean, that's great. That's wonderful. Right. Like everybody it, would agree. It would be the first time that that ever happened with like any previous rulemaking that we've ever went to. These kind yeah. of uh, appropriations have never been automatically signed. Yeah, hey, never once. here, it you've was, got these requirements. You've yeah. got these mandates. Here's the money to get it done. And, and I think that that Katie Arrington quote is, is huge. You know, how am I going to pay you for stuff that you've already said you're doing? I can't pay you twice for it. Right. 
And, and so, like, I, I feel like that there's going to be something that comes in here. But there are a lot of rumors that are circulating. There is a lot of buzz that is circulating that states that people are trying to make the effort to do it. But I don't still don't think that it's like the the speed in which the government works, obviously, is one of those things that it, nobody will really ever understand. You just patiently accept however fast something comes to you. And with that being said, I, I don't think that it's still the right mindset for organizations to be like, yeah, money's coming, help's coming, well, lifeboat's I mean, coming. So that's, that's a danger, right? Is because people yeah. might say, well, let, let's say we get word that there's a big wave of funding coming, right? Does, does mm-hmm. everybody wait until the funding comes around the corner in order to get started? Maybe, right? Maybe they do. What's mm-hmm. more interesting to me is the one of the the primary argument that pops up before we start talking about the validity of the controls or the intricacy of the controls or implementing and assessing the controls or changing the controls is cost and so the the main argument is we're, we can't do it we won't do it because we can't afford it well yep. let's assume that a button gets pushed and the money machine goes off and everybody gets a pile of money and now cost is either not an issue or it is significantly less of an issue. Do you see a corresponding increase in success within the industrial base against CMMC if cost is no longer a problem, right? Or do you continue to see the same findings that DibCAC has showed us where the understanding and interpretation of the controls lags behind what you need in order to be assessment viable, right? Yeah, well, so we've had conversations with people that are like, I can't afford to hire help. I'm trying to understand this myself, but I can't really evaluate what's being said and and digest what's being said. And so I think that if if there is money that's added to the scenario where money isn't as huge of a concern, it's still going to be, you know, an issue where where funding has to be found. But if it's not as huge of a concern, I I think that alleviates some of the stress associated with it. But it's still not the easy button solution. Listen, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want anybody to misinterpret what we're saying here. There should be funding, right? Yes, one hundred percent. There should absolutely be funding. And if there I is a there... justified reason for you to yeah. need help, that, that's there. If you Listen, just the 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 self attestation piece is wild, right? It is a right. very bizarre way that things have played out. But everybody's living in glass houses here, right? We, yeah. Nobody really knew what they were signing up for and what they were attesting to. And DOD didn't really care until they all of a sudden needed to care. And that has caused tons and tons of issues where a lot of review and rebukes of the CMMC program have come at the uh, at the hands of the cost argument. And so if you eliminate the cost argument, then we can get back to the real work of saying, are these controls the right ones? Are they good? Are they effective? Should we change them? Should we not? How do we implement them? On and on and on and on. We have to get around that cost argument first. But I I do think that it's it's very interesting to sort of look forward and say, okay, now you got a pile of money. Now what? Right? Like the cost is not an issue. So now what do you do? Right? And I think that there's still going to be a lot of companies that don't know where to start and what what happens whenever they you know have the funding sort of appropriated to them. You know, hopefully they they you know, find the same resources for focusing on 171A and figuring out what's going on. Hopefully changes to 800-171 will make it more clear mm-hmm. where to start in terms of what's happening. But I think it's a very interesting uh, idea to sort of think about what might come around the corner, either, you know, 
Q1-ish. I'm not sure when it might happen. These are just rumors about funding, but it is something that is unprecedented in the history of the requirements and the rulemaking so far. I mean, there hasn't been a funding appropriate. It's all been allowable costs rolled into your overhead rate. And that clearly is just not a sufficient answer for what needs to happen. Yeah, we're still in this this portion where we have this insurmountable wall for people coming in and trying to do business with the DOD that we need to, to accomplish the mission, right? And this non-existent wall, for the most part, of security that's stopping all the work that we're doing from ending up in the hands of the people that it's intended to protect us against, right? And, and yeah. so, like, I, I think that it, it's never, nothing's ever perfect the first time around. And, and, and so I, I, you hope that some of these rumors do come true and that they're awarded appropriately. And it also, you hope that it's not one of those cases where we have all these tools that you can use that are free but they're only applied to 3% of the dip, right? So like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, uh, I think maybe on the next episode, we'll talk about like the dib CS program and some of the DOD's attempts at cybersecurity as a service, the merits and shortcomings of that approach of, um, you know, what that means for solving for the requirements that the dib has, or just adding extra stuff that doesn't actually change the burden that the dib faces. But I think that's probably something that we'll talk about for the next time. So, you know, these are, imagine being the, the AB, right. And trying to put out information to town hall and somebody drops that question in your Q and a, like, you, yeah, it's not really something that you're tooled to answer. And you definitely aren't tooled to answer it in like five minutes. But, and then you, you know, also have to tread lightly on the way that you answer it too. Sure. It, it, yeah. There's no, without a doubt, every word that you say, especially if you're a member of the AB or if you're a member of DOD, every word that you say, people are going to hang on that as it's their last surviving yeah. thread. And, and if you say the wrong thing, somebody's going to get some sort of wishful hoping or they're going to get really disappointed when it doesn't come to true because they don't you know, interpret it the right way. Like, you know, that, it's that's funny. Weird. So that leads into this other question that was brought up but didn't get answered in the AB, which says, what strategies and tactics have the AB and DOD been discussing to mitigate concerns of the industrial base about the slow rollout and historic lack of transparency and proactive communication from the department. And that's quite the question because you are, you're asking the AB what their strategies and tactics are for poor communication and transparency from the DOD. Mm -hmm. And there's really not a lot the D that the AB can do whether the A, whether the DOD is communicative or not. Right. So we sort of have to get that out of the way. The AB, for the most part, is on the outside looking in, like a lot of us, uh, in terms of what happens inside the Pentagon, inside DOD decision-making. The, the part of this question that I find very interesting, though, is the statements where they say, Dib concerns about the slow rollout and the historic lack of transparency and proactive communication. That's a common theme. This is something that we've been bringing up more and more when you look at Department of Homeland Security rulemaking mm -hmm. and their upcoming CUI rule. Effectively, uh, think of the DHS CUI rule as the equivalent to the DOD rule that brought us the DFARS 7012 clause. So DHS is getting ready to release their final rule for their version of a DFARS 7012 clause. But because it's a different department, it'll have a different name. When other agencies go through rulemaking and when other rulemaking efforts, even within the DOD, occur, there is no communication. 
And when I mean no communication, I mean there is zero communication outside of a notice in the Federal Register that rulemaking will occur, a notice in the Federal Register of a proposed rule asking for comments, mm -hmm. and then a, some amount of time goes by, and then you get the final rule, and you get their answers to the comments. That's it. And if you don't hear anything in the interim, that is a feature of how the rulemaking process works. Here in the CMMC world, we have had thousands of webinars and thousands of appearances by the DoD. I remember it was July, it was the summer of 2021. Jesse Salazar was running the CMMC program for the DoD at the time, and he was giving testimony to a subcommittee of the Senate Armed Services Committee, specifically on cybersecurity. And they asked him, hey, you're new on board. What's been going on with DoD outreach to the industrial base? And he said, I'll find this quote. He said, we've given a thousand webinars mm -hmm. and we created Project Spectrum, which has 500,000 unique visitors since it was established. This is all we do is communicate what's going on. I mean, Stacy goes on podcasts and she goes on webinars and she is doing live streams while she's walking her dog and Katie Arrington was doing webinars. I mean, that is all they have done mm -hmm. is give all this information out. And over time, what we've started to you know sort of piece together is, oh, there's going to be a phased rollout and there's probably going to be this. And there's like some little details that are probably being the rule. But for the most part, the DoD said the same thing over and over and over again. So when I hear questions like, what are you going to do about the lack of transparency? First of all, the DoD doesn't agree that they haven't been transparent. They've been, in their minds, extremely transparent with what's going on. If they wanted to play by the book, then they wouldn't be saying anything at all, yeah. right? When they also say a lack of proactive communication, they have testified to Congress that they are being proactively communicative, and they have the numbers to prove it. I mean, they've got tons and tons of these webinars that they're putting out. What I think is happening is people are saying, we're not getting the answers that we like, right? Or we're getting very nebulous answers that maybe the DOD at the Pentagon level can't answer because they have to deal with the specifics of what happens in an assessment or, or something like that, right? But just this blanket statement that there is very little communication or there's no proactive communication or you know, any, anything like that, especially on historic levels mm -hmm. is, is just not true. It's just not true. It might not be satisfactory, but it, but it's not true that it's not occurring. Yeah. It's, it's, you're getting more than you're, you should be accustomed to getting it, It's simply put what, what you're getting. Is it everything that you want to hear? No, but it's more than most people hear in similar cases. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's frustrating because for the, you know, for the most part, the DOD shouldn't be telling us as much as they're telling sure. us, right? Like they shouldn't be saying anything because rulemaking is a very sensitive process and you're supposed to go through those very specific events uh, and only release that public information via the federal register, which they will surely do when the rule comes out. So it's just a little bit of a, of a perspective thing, but it gets back to the idea that rulemaking is a very opaque process that people aren't familiar mm -hmm. with. And one of the things that they said at the top of the town hall was that, what's the status of the CMMC rule? And the status of the CMMC rule today, as of the this recording at the end of October, is that it is still with the DOD for what they call internal agency coordination. And the big signal that everybody should look for 
is when DOD sends their CMMC rule to the Office of Management and Budget, to OMB. There is an office within OMB known as OIRA. Let me make sure I get the, uh, the acronym correct. The Office of Information Transport and Regulatory Affairs. Affairs. All rules that get made by all executive branch agencies have to get reviewed by OMB's OIRA office before they get published in the Federal Register. So this whole process since February, when they said rulemaking will take nine to 24 months, one of the final steps that has to occur is for the DOD to take their rule and give it to OMB so that OMB can bless it and then say, cool, put it in the register. Now, the history of why it goes to OMB is a much longer conversation, but you know, they basically said uh, at the town hall that it's still in, in, in internal agency coordination. And that's sort of very interesting to know about because the big thing to watch for is when it goes to OMB. And you know, we had some folks talk to us on Reddit whenever we posted the link to episode one. And they said one of the you know biggest issues is trying to get leadership buy-in when leadership at a company thinks that CMMC isn't happening. And this is such a common thing that comes up. Uh, my strategy that I've adopted, you know, somewhat recently is sort of turning turning the conversation around and saying, what is it that makes you think that CMMC is not happening? Because the case for saying that CMMC is happening is not a feeling, right? It is not a intuition. It's not like a gut feel that I have about CMMC is probably going to happen. The DOD spent all of 2021 reviewing the CMMC program. They published their strategic intent for CMMC 2.0 at the end of 2021. Right after the holidays at the beginning of February, they said, we're going to take that strategic intent and we're going to go through the rulemaking process. It'll take nine to 24 months. Here we are at the end of 2021 and DOD is getting ready to hand their rule to OMB for final review before it goes to the federal register, right? That is the most solid possible process to confirm that CMMC is still happening because there's you're going through the formal rulemaking process at an agency level in order to get it documented. Now, it takes a long time, obviously, just like they told us in February. But when people say it's not happening, I'm like, is there something I'm missing about rulemaking here? Because if they said, oh, we're, we're not sending it to OMB or we're not doing rulemaking, we're not going through this process, then that's a very different universe than the one we currently live in, right? Where they're on like, the cusp of handing it over and, and being done. Once it goes to OMB, OMB takes their review time and then they hand it over to the Federal Register editors in order to get it formatted for publication. I mean, that's how the process works. What, so you're talking, you know, we're within, you know, I mean, the timeline that DOD has had is that Spring of 2023 is when the rule should be published in the register. And that matches up with exactly the timeline that we're on now, because if they give the rule to OMB before the holidays, about 60 to 90 days later, you're in springtime and then it gets handed to the register. So when people say, I don't think it's happening or I think it's changing, I'm like, I I don't know where that basis of of conclusion is coming from. Like, what what are you reading or hearing or seeing that is allowing you to reach that conclusion. In my experience, it's almost always a feeling that they have, right? Either there's some confirmation bias going on or they would like for it to not happen or somebody told them that it's not happening, but that is not the way that the rulemaking cycle is playing out 
today. Yeah, there's a lot of, of the Nostradamus effect where they feel as though the implications of the program going live and that these things appearing in the contracts are part of the argument that, that fuels it. I get the same comments that you get, right? It, it's just, it, for the most part, I, I think that the, the DOD is cognizant of all, all the arguments that are being made, but the point in the process that we're at I don't think that that's relevant to the holding up the process of the the engine, right? Like, yeah, it's just not. Well, you know, it's interesting the way you the way that you said that is. Listen, we said it before. We're going to caveat it again. They're just rumors at this mm-hmm. point about possible funding appropriations, right? But let's just say that we, you know, we take into consideration what you said. Most people say I don't think CMMC is going to happen because of the fallout and impact that it'll have on the supply chain. We can't afford it. Therefore, we'll leave the supply chain or we'll go out of business. And there's no way that the DOD is going to accept that level of damage to their supply chains. Thus, CMMC won't happen. If it turns out that there is some amount of funding that's appropriated to the CMMC effort, then you are guaranteed to see CMMC happen, right? Everybody keeps saying there's no way Congress will let CMMC happen because of the damage that would occur to the industrial base. But we're hearing rumors that Congress is considering turning on the spigot in order to fund it, which means that Congress is not considering getting rid of the CMMC program or demanding that DOD change it fundamentally. So when you sort of take those two things together, one is highly speculative in terms of possible funding. One is not in terms of what's happening in the rulemaking process. I just don't see how somebody would determine that CMMC is not going to happen unless they admit that's just what I feel like is going to happen, which listen, that's okay. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, crazy stuff can happen. However, from a strategic perspective, do you want to bet the viability of you being able to do DOD work on this like gut feeling that you have, or do you want to sort of play the probability game here and say, rulemaking is still occurring exactly the way that DOD said it was going to occur almost a year ago we're at the end of that cycle because they're getting ready to hand it to OMB and you think that it's not going to happen. So you haven't started yet. Right. So it's a very dangerous way. That's a very dangerous corner to sort of convince yourself into. If that makes and sense. then the, the perspective of the arguments off, often comes from the, the side that it's either going away or it's not going away as far as like the suppliers are going to disappear or they're not going to be here. They're going to be funded and be here. The other part, they're not going to d- disappear. They're going to consolidate, right? We see a lot of M and A stuff, and that's a whole other topic. We could probably spend two hours just on that yeah. alone. But oh, I mean, that's yeah. I'm going to mark that down as probably something that we should talk about coming up because you know we've got we've got some partners that 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 Summit Seven works closely with, and we've just got colleagues in the ecosystem that are adjacent to CMMC. Mm-hmm. They don't really do CMMC directly, <clears throat> private equity, uh, some large consultancies and things like that. And I mean, the M and A activity in the ecosystem is off the charts yeah. i mean it's just it's just off the charts i mean you talk to some of these folks that like <laughs> it sounds crazy but uh, some of these folks where they go to like private equity conferences and things like that where they talk about opportunities and what's going on in the ecosystem i mean they're licking their chops at the the possible consolidation mm-hmm. in the industrial base at the hands of regulations like this not to say that that's a good thing it's just that i don't think that where the money is at is is sort of assuming that CMMC is going to go away, right? The folks that are sort of standing on the sidelines with a bunch of money to invest in M&A activity in the sub-tiers of the DIB see it as an inevitability and thus as an opportunity. So when you sort of take these different perspectives, the rulemaking perspective, 
Congress is not doing what people think they're going to do. If anything, there are rumors that they're going to do the opposite and apply some funding. Private equity have evaluated what's going on, and they're starting to make moves for M&A and investments in the industrial base. The idea that you as a single point of information have a, a you know this assumption or this intuition that CMMC going, is going away is just a very precarious place to um, um, position your your business in t- against the regulations, right? And so for those of those folks who are listening, right, like some of the folks that gave us some feedback, if you hear leadership or management say, we don't think it's going to happen, I would encourage you to ask them why, why they think that or how they reach that conclusion. Because, you know, it's not that they're wrong. It's just that there generally isn't as much evidence for that position as they maybe have convinced themselves mm-hmm. of. So that isn't to say necessarily that CMMC is coming tomorrow, right? And that it's all doom and gloom and lightning striking from the sky, but 800-171 is being revised and it's going to increase in size and the primes are going to accelerate timelines and who knows what happens with funding or not. And there's just a lot of uncertainty around what's going on around the program. And that I think that causes a lot of hesitancy to get started on the requirements, which are clearly not changing. Yeah, we've also we've often heard the, the term kick in the can down the road, right? And I think that what we see happening now is that primes are definitely no longer kicking cans. It's we're we're gonna stop we're we're gonna take yeah. the can away, right? We're just gonna tell you this is what needs to happen. You know, and this is this is something that, you know, you hear sometimes where people say, Oh, there's not enough assessors, mm-hmm. right? So maybe, maybe we'll do a, like a, a show where we just run down the bullets of why CMMC is not happening and just talk about them individually. But one of them is the cost, which we sort of talked about some of the rumors that mm-hmm. we're hearing. The other is well, there won't be enough assessors, right? Based off what we've seen from DIPCAC numbers, based off what we've seen in the field, based off what you could sort of hear about generally in the interface with 800 out there, the real constraint on the ecosystem is not the lack of assessors. Mm-hmm. That is a constraint on the process. But people generally say CMMC won't happen because there aren't enough assessors. As if everyone is ready for an assessment. Right. Tomorrow, like, so rules are just right? going to pop in and people are just going to be waiting in line. Uh, or like there's 80,000 companies that are ready for just, an assessment. Just reference last month's true. DIPCAC numbers and we'll understand. Of course, you know, like, right? like so. The real constraint, the real constraint is on the implementers, right? I mean, you know, there's, Summit 7 and some of the folks that we compete with that are also very good. And there's just a lot of folks in the ecosystem that focus on implementing requirements, getting companies ready to go. There are not very many of them that are oriented around this set of requirements. And so when people say there's not enough implementers, I always say to zoom out and say the real problem is there's not enough people to implement and sort of shepherd people through these requirements. So I know that, you know, prior to coming on board with Summit 7, when the 2020 rule came out that established the DFAR 7012 clause and SPRS scoring and all of this stuff, everybody's backlog went up overnight. Mm-hmm. Like, because just the amount of demand skyrocketed and the capacity to get people through that first wave of implementation just didn't match up. I mean, it was, uh, oh, it was a pretty long time for people to get. Uh, you know, fully through the the implementation process. And that was a small fragment of the number of companies that will respond once the CMMC rule comes through in, you know, early 2023. So you're going to have primes say, we want you to be CMMC certified now. When are you going to get CMMC certified? 
And then they're going to turn around and come to a company that specializes in getting people ready for CMMC. And they won't even be able to get started for six months, 30 days, sometimes six, 45 I, days, I, six I months. I feel like it's going to be knows? longer. I feel like it's going to be it's like a, this process a, where everybody just floods, right? And then the market's just going to get so flooded with people that need it's a it. Non, it's a non-zero amount of time to get started. And this is, you know, this is an interesting point because it's something that you spent a ton of time developing and something that we just recently at Summit 7 put out was this seven steps to CMMC uh, sequence of blogs, mm-hmm. as well as some video content sort of explaining what would, what does the timeline look like for implementation? What does it actually look like to go through all these processes? You know, what does the Gantt chart look like for start to finish from status quo to assessment viable at the end? Um, you know, what, how much time does it take? You have to take whatever that block of time is, which we'll, we'll link to those resources in the show notes and slide it to the right based off of the backlog that the implementers will face when the rule comes out. So all of a sudden, you have companies that are saying, you know, we don't think it's going to happen. It happens. And then they find out that they won't be ready for their assessment for a year, like 18 months. If your primes turn around and say, we're going to go with the companies that were early adopters and they're going to be ready in 30 days, that's a dynamic that is completely outside of phased rollouts and waivers and whatever other changes are associated with CMMC 2.0. That's just a, mar- that's just a market dynamic at that point. Yeah, it was sometime, the, the uh, start to finish timeline that was provided in seven steps was 52 weeks. And that's all sunshine and daisies, yeah. right? That's not any of sure. those extra elements or those uh, added, you know, um, different uh, deterrers that, that, that could come in and, and possibly like sway you two or three weeks here. Yeah. Uh, what about holidays? And, what about, you know, like it's just, well, you, what about budget cycles? Also I mean, true. this is, you know, one of the, one of the things, right. I mean, we are here at the end of the year, right. People are, 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 are projecting what they're going to do going into 2023. We potentially have the rule come out in the middle of Q1 end of Q1. You know, the heat is really turning up beginning of Q2 in the middle of this budget cycle that you plan for, you know, one of the reasons why the government kept saying you attested to 171, start with 171, do 171 is that by the time the CMC program comes up, you're getting in line for an assessment. Mm-hmm. You're not getting in line for your implementation, mm-hmm. right? So if you haven't started or you don't have a lot of confidence in your implementation against 800-171A, you you start stacking tons and tons of time to the left of your ability to go through this assessment. And it's just a, you know, that's something that is a very concerning, I think, when people see it mapped out, like in that seven steps documentation. So when I hear people say, hey, my leadership thinks CMMC is not going to happen. The first step, I think, is saying, what makes you think it's not going to happen? And then sort of going into, here's one example of a timeline of getting ready. And it's about a year for what's going on and there won't be enough people to help everyone. So it's a year plus to get through that process. So we, Jacob, we took and we were talking and the last question that was unanswered was about transparency and communication, proactive communication. And then one of the next ones that we wanna jump into, right? Deals with the updates to the website, the CMMC website and, and them being limited. Does that mean that things have moved to OMB for their review? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was one of the questions, right? There's a banner on the CMMC website right now that says, you know, uh, updates will be limited during rulemaking. Mm -hmm. And the question was, does that mean that the rule has moved to OMB? That banner does not mean that it has been moved to OMB. We will link to the, uh, I think it's regulation.gov. There's a dashboard that OMB maintains where you can see all of the rules that have been submitted to OMB. And the second that the DOD rule pops up in that list for CMMC, the, you know, turn the hourglass over and wait for the shoe to drop. Uh, so, you know, we're waiting for that process to, to occur, but that's, that's basically where we are. So the interesting thing about that though, the banner on the website, not the indication that it's gone to OMB, that should be any day now. Um, but there are, there are, weird peculiarities in the in the graphics on the cmmc webpage. you know i made a linkedin post about this um uh, our our buddy jacob hill actually messaged me saying hey there's a, a diagram on the webpage uh showing the three levels of cmmc but the numbers are different than what they were before and this isn't so the first time that that's happened either this isn't the first yeah. time it's happened right so there's this famous like you know the purple green blue you know, three tier diagram that's on there that sort of shows the changes from 1.0 and five levels to 2.0. The 2.0 calling levels. card. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's got this like, you know, sort of infographic mm -hmm. and it says, hey, at CMMC level one, there's 17 requirements. And at CMMC level two, there's 110 requirements. And at CMMC level three, there's 110 plus because the number of requirements out of 8172 is TBD mm -hmm. at this point. And that's been the diagram that we've had forever. And the diagram that popped up specified a number of controls for CMMC level three and said there are 15 rather than 17 requirements at CMMC level one. And so, um, you know, I made a bit of a sarcastic post about the fact that watching this back and forth is sort of like watching pro wrestling because every once in a while, right, they'll... You're like, I don't know what to believe here. And every once in a while, reality peeks through. And you're like, I think they really hit that guy. Mm -hmm. And so when they say, hey, we're getting ready to put the rule to OMB and we're not going to make very many changes. And then there's this new update to this picture. You're like, well, is that, are those the numbers that are going to be in the rule? Like, did they accidentally push the update too early? Mm -hmm. one, one specific detail, though. <clears throat> you know, one of the, one of the most common frustrations that people express about CMMC is that the requirements keep changing, right? And the requirements are always different. And I think that this, this diagram that popped up fuels that, that uh, criticism because they'll say, well, uh, you said 17 requirements at CMMC level one, and now it says 15. And this is why I don't want to get started because you keep changing the requirements. Right. And, and so I'm going to wait until the requirements are stable for me to really invest time and money and effort because this is ridiculous. Totally understandable. <clears throat> the frustrating part about this is that the requirements are the same, right? The, the best way to understand the changes from CMMC 1.0 to CMMC 2.0 is to understand what existed before CMMC 1.0 and what exists today, okay. right? Before CMMC 1.0, everybody had the 15 basic requirements in a FAR clause 52204-21. 15 very basic security requirements. The FAR 15. And then folks... I'm the sorry. FAR 15. 
yeah, yeah, the FAR basic, the FAR 15, 15 requirements. If you fast forward to CMMC 1.0, they say you have 17 requirements at, at CMMC level one. And so you go, oh, well, they added two requirements. They've changed the requirements. They're increasing the requirements. And then now you see under CMMC 2.0, this diagram that says, well, we're back to 15. So they must have gotten rid of two requirements. And this is probably something that I think will, maybe we'll write a blog post about this to, to sort of map it out. But here's the deal, folks. If you go look up FAR 52-204-21, the clause, which we'll add the link to, it shows you the list of all 15 requirements. And you'll notice that the 10th requirement, uh, let's see if I get it right here. The requirement that discusses, let me make sure I find it so I don't give everybody the wrong information. The requirement, oh, the ninth requirement, the requirement that discusses physical controls is different than the other requirements because it has semicolons in it. This is, this is literally why it went from 15 to 17. So every other requirement in the list of 15 is a single statement. The requirement listed on number nine has semicolons, multiple statements. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they said, instead of 15 requirements, we're going to break out those two semicolons and we're going to make it two other requirements. Completely the same, exactly the same, mm -hmm. same language, same everything, same controls in 800-171 that correspond to these 15 controls, exactly the mm -hmm. same. So for them to have gone from 15 controls in far basic to 17 controls in CMMC 1.0 level one, not actually a change in those level one requirements for them to have gone back to 15 requirements in CMMC 2.0 level one, not a change in the requirements. Mm -hmm. It's literally a completely arbitrary difference in terms of the number. So the specific language here is escort visitors and monitor visitor activity, semicolon, maintain audit logs of physical access, semicolon, and control and manage physical access devices. If you go look in the CMMC model documentation on the CMMC website today at level one, you'll see that those three requirements map to 3.10.3, 3.10.4, and 3.10.5. They just took those three sentences in between the semicolons and made them their own requirements. And you have 17 all of a sudden. You go back to the original version, you put them in a single sentence, and you're back to 15 mm -hmm. requirements. Now, that's very interesting, right? I think that's probably, it probably clarifies what's going on. But man, what are we doing? Yeah, like what? You don't need additional would, things to why? complicate the process, right? Now, everybody thinks that there's changes. Changes abroad. Oh no, it's it's switching yeah. again. So then and, some of that I mean, confidence disappears them? in the entire program. I can't blame them. Can cannot, you cannot. Yeah. No, you can't. Of Who, course. This is listen, I mean Here we, we go again, right? That's are, the, that's kind of like the impression what, I got. This is what we said. Everybody lives in glass houses, but it's stuff like this where it just watching the DOD shoot themselves in the foot and you don't see the A B clarify mm -hmm. it, right? And you don't see I mean, I blame industry the least, mm -hmm. right? Because Although it is obvious when you see it, the amount of time and effort that it would take for a normal business owner or a, somebody working IT and security for a business 
to go dig into this and make that that realization is pretty unreasonable, mm-hmm. right? I and mean, it's just not something that normal people are going to do. So it is it it is on the DoD and the AB and other you know entities in the ecosystem to clarify what's going on. And something as simple as saying, "Oh, well, you don't have 15 requirements because of these semicolons. It's actually 17 things." So we're going to write it as 17 causes tremendous backlash because they go, you went from 15 to 17, you're increasing the requirements, you're increasing the cost, you're increasing the burden. They didn't control the narrative. They didn't explain the accounting of going from 15 to 17, not actually representing new requirements. And so when you go back to 15 requirements, everybody goes, see, see, you're changing it. The requirements aren't stable. How can you possibly ask us to get started on these requirements when you keep doing stuff like this? When you this? keep moving the goalposts. Even though, yeah, of course, you're moving it, you're changing mm-hmm. it, the requirements are not stable. And then you and I come around with a podcast and a bunch of LinkedIn posts and we go, did you know that they didn't actually change the requirements? And normal people go, what's going on here? Like, are we are we taking this seriously? Like, is this really an effort to protect the warfighter and win the war and defeat the Chinese and actually implement basic security hygiene? Why are you jacking around with the changing in the numbers? Right. And this is, this is one reason why back to that question about transparency and proactive communication. This is one reason why government agencies don't talk while they're going through rulemaking because stuff like this happens, misinterpretations happen And all of a sudden they get mired in this process of having to sort of run the PR effort because it doesn't really matter until the rule comes out. The rule says 17, the rule says 15, and then it's an interesting footnote in history that 17 isn't actually more than 15 because blah, 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 blah. Yep. Right? So, but it's little things like that where they make changes to, to what exists already via CMMC 1.0, and then they make changes back to what existed via CMMC 2.0, and they don't explain them. So everybody goes, I'll just wait until the rule comes out. Yeah, it's like it's like adding parsley on the dish, right? We're trying to do all this stuff to make it taste better for you. But realistically, nobody cares if there's parsley on top of whatever it may be, it's, right? It's yeah. the it's the it's the honeydew melon of the fruit. Do salad, not disrespect. Just, you honeydew know what I mean? Melon. Well, I think we can work on our food metaphors in order to drive this point home in the future. But the the point is, is that you had 15 basic requirements via FAR basic before CMMC. You had 17 under CMMC Mm -hmm. 1.0. It was still the same 15 requirements. They just broke out the sentences according to the semicolons. And they were only the physical protection requirements. And they're already in 800-171 anyways. It didn't actually change anything. Here, we're back to 15 basic requirements. Nothing changed. So it just becomes, you know, it's just so frustrating to have to continuously explain that they're changing it, but not really, right? They made waivers under 2.0, but not really because nobody's actually going to have realistic access to them. And it's really not a thing that's going to occur. They made POAMs under CMMC 2.0, but not really because the five-point controls and the three-point controls can't be on the POAM. And since 80% of the controls have to be implemented, you can only have a small subset of the one-point controls unimplemented. So you have a POAM, 
but not really, right? And they go, well, there's going to be a phased rollout, but not really because you can't control what the primes do requiring their supply chain to have stuff implemented. Oh, and there's 15 requirements instead of 17, but not really because it's the same stuff that there's been under the hood all same along. amount of determination statements and and the other thing about exactly poems I, I think we, we you have to understand this you don't pick your poems you're supposed to give the good old college try to every single one of those determination statements all 320 of them that exist when you go into the assessment and things aren't performed to satisfaction that's when this exists right you don't want people going into this process thinking I can give it a try as long as I get to 70%, the three and fives or whatever. No, yeah, you have to give the good old college try yeah. everywhere. I don't honestly, man. I, I mean, I totally agree on the poems. What you just said, stop, just blew my mind. You're a genius. So Whoa. the best way to sum up, the best way to sum up this difference between 15 to 17 back to 15 is to ask the question, did the number of and assessment objectives that, if the number of assessment objectives didn't change, then you could chop it up word 100%. for word, colon by yes, colon, sir. comma by comma, and it didn't matter. That is a perfect way of summarizing it. We should probably do the math for that blog post to say what was the number of assessment objectives pre-CMMC 1.0, during CMMC 1.0, and now under CMMC 2.0. They are exactly the same. But of course, this is why it's so important for everybody to understand the but, assessment objectives because when you speak in the language of assessment objectives, they have people have to know what that means. Right? Pro, getting back to that transparency in the communication, yes, you should be accustomed to the DOD not saying anything or, or whatever. But when things like this happen and, and when things like this come about, I, I think it would behoove them, especially giving the track record, right, to eliminate some of the PTSD that's associated with it, to be like, hey, guys, we're going to change this because it didn't make sense. And that's not what's happening. Yeah. Hey, we oh, made man. a mistake. I mean, hey, we thought this was a great idea. Seems to cause confusion. We're trying to align this with already existing requirements. We already know that the controls, the determination statements, the assessment objectives, whatever you want to reference, right? It still all aligns. But the fact of yeah. the matter is, is that if you do something blindly, hoping somebody doesn't notice, and then people notice, guess what happens? You have more explaining yep. to do. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a perfect point, man. I mean, it's a perfect point. Back to that idea of communication and being proactive. I mean, there's a case to be said that they are being very communicative, but every time something like this happens, you're like, what do, you, what do we do? And, and like, not to be lost what's in this whole here? conversation about the changes from 1.0 to 2.0 or these new graphics that are popping up with new numbers on them is the fact that there is a new number assigned. New, new numbers. New, new numbers. There is a new number yeah. that's assigned to 800, or excuse me, to CMMC level three, which comes yes. from derived controls of 800172. Now. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, to, to verify. So CMC level one is the 15 controls in FAR basic, FAR 522421. CMC level two, the 110 requirements in 800171 could possibly be more when revision three comes Correct. out. CMC level three is the requirements that are a subset of the requirements specified in 800-172, which are designed to enhance 800-171. But you're saying that they've actually specified the number. Right. Out of so now it's going to be 134 total controls that are going to be attached. Let's go and do the assessment. So Once we know that the controls, which exact controls in 172, it's 24 additional controls on top of the 800 On top of... So they're going to enhance... Okay. Because first of all, 172 is enhancements to 171. So things that already exist in 171, right? 
And so they are going to take and enhance certain mechanisms that you should have in place through your implementation of 171. Now, where we know that things aren't going to come in are contingency planning, systems and services acquisition, and uh, right. let's see what... All the families that were tailored. Yeah, all, all, right. the, all the things that we really hope that come in. There aren't going to be any additions to it, but there's going to be enhanced requirements that are associated with it. And I wish that I was able to... Um, nerd out enough before the show to, to kind of see, you know, start speculating this and that and this and that. But speculation really hasn't gotten us very far in this entire process for anybody that's done it this far. So let's stick with what right. we know. One of the things that we do know is that in 172, they introduced organizational divine values. And we saw that where? In 853, right? These are things that are derived from yep. there. But what needs to be clarified is that in 800-172, and I, I think that we definitely need to, to poke on this is that with the organizational defined values, Jacob, it's not going to be that the organization is going to get to pick them. It's the government agency that's imposing the requirements. So what's going to happen is, is that the DOD is going to say, these are the 24 controls that you have to do. These are the defined values. And those defined values kind of lie within frequencies and things of that nature. And, and, and right. so the tidbits of 172, those are the changes. At least now what we know is from, for level three with that graphic that was released that now there's 15 controls in level one, there's 110 in level two, and now 134 total in level three. So there's, yeah, so there's 15, 110, and then 24. Yep. Effectively, yep. right, is the way, the, de the delta between the two. Now, the interesting thing about this, right, is that the interesting thing about this, like we said before, everything is 853 at the end Correct. of the day. So 171 is taken from 853, 172 is taken from 853, 171 is the set of standard minimum controls, 172 enhances Correct. Them. This dynamic exists in the 853 catalog, where you have base controls, and then what are known as control enhancements. enhancements. And the majority of 853 is actually control enhancements to those base controls that you would pick and select and tailor for various reasons, mm -hmm. right? Now, uh, the weird thing about 172 is that it's not a one-for-one -one enhancement. The, the controls in 172 represent like groups of 853 controls that enhance the 171 requirements, which are derivatives of 853 controls. It's very messy when you go back to 853 it's, through those two lenses. I wonder if uh if if the changes the upcoming changes to 8171 what those will imply for changes to 172 in the future. It's almost like taking an 8171 control and making the 53 control again. Which funnily enough is what NIST said this morning in their comment summary is a thing that they're planning that they're considering doing because it's just too confusing to go with a cut down version of an 853 control. They'd rather just go back to allegedly they'd rather just go back to the full 853 control itself. Now, the interesting thing about CMMC level three is that it is ostensibly a new set of requirements because before CMMC 1.0, you had the 15 basic requirements mm -hmm. for what is now level mm -hmm. one. You had the 110 requirements, which we now call level two. You didn't have 800-172 on top of it. That was a new mm -hmm. thing that came about, uh, you know, sort of in tandem with the CMMC program overall. So everything at level three, 800-172 ostensibly is new. 
compared to what existed beforehand. Um, we, you know, we've talked with Stacy. I think we had we we discussed this briefly last episode. Is that the DibCAC assessments uh, that went out over the last eighteen months mm-hmm. or so? Uh, those were not a random lottery in terms of who was getting picked for a DibCAC assessment. No. The DOD knows which programs and data and companies and capabilities it is particularly interested in the most for various reasons. And it just so happens that if you talk to folks who received a DibCAC high assessment, they generally tend to be working on some pretty high speed stuff. And so I had always had this underlying suspicion that if folks had a DibCAC high assessment, it was probably a pretty good indicator that they would need CMMC level three. And Stacy more or less uh, confirmed that kind of with a wink and a nod at CS2, where she said that is probably the case, that if you have a DibCAC high, you will likely need CMMC level three. So very important for folks to pay attention to developments in terms of that number. I don't know how many controls are actually in 800-172. I think it's 35. And here they're saying 24 of those will be required at level three, although we do not know which 24 yet. And we, we um, know that the families that are not affected by the enhancements, so the, the, the families, the control families that appear in 800-171 that do not have any enhancements attached to them in 172 are audit and accountability, maintenance, media protection, and physical protection. So you, you can obviously imagine that there's going to be enhancements to access control. I, well, we already know there are enhancements because of uh, dual, dual yeah. authorization. Um, and then the enhancements to SC and SI. And, and, and so we, you would think that those are where the areas of focus are going to be. But that's, that's all yeah. speculation until they release what 24 of those 35 controls are going to be attached to CMMC level, yeah. level three. And I think just as a good rule of thumb is that, you know, we're talking about 171, we're talking about 172 and their relationship to each mm-hmm. other. They, they both go back to 853. So if you feel like you are going to need to deal with CMMC level three, if you feel like that is probably in the cards for whatever reason, don't wait on CMMC publications for level three to come out. You can go read 853 now and anticipate what would be involved because they can't add anything beyond what's in 853. That's sort of the master catalog of possible controls so uh, you know we always recommend that people go back to 853 nist is mulling the idea of just dealing with 853 directly it's always a good way to go back that's why i handed these out on halloween yeah that's why i was handing out 853 tell your tell your parents i wish i would have had somebody like you in my neighborhood at halloween so what i do kind of kind of revealing here is that um in college the first cybersecurity class that i ever took 853 was the reading material, right? And I was like, why? What 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 is the point in this, right? Man, who's laughing now? <laughs> like my you know, <laughs> geez. You know, man, I you know, it's it isn't it isn't very approachable. No, right? it's not. Uh it's not really the kind of document that you would read cover to cover. Um, but it is the it is a good reference to go back to as sort of starting principles. You know, the the metaphor I always tell people is that 853 is like the Latin of control mm-hmm. frameworks because they all trace back to this like root language and if you understand what's going on in that document then it makes it very easy to sort of change contexts and deal with different control frameworks because at the end of the day once you're familiar with 853 172 171 cis iso csf all it doesn't really matter what 
what you know uh how you riff on those same controls it's all the same under the hood all right so we've obviously covered quite a few things that have happened so far in terms of what happened in the town hall and all of the other rumors and things that have occurred understanding rulemaking based off some of the questions that get brought up in the town hall tons of other stuff happened this month and so i think to wrap up we'll just sort of walk through those at a high level and provide references to them mm -hmm. people are interested in diving into them further then you know let us know in the comments if you want us to expand on some of these uh uh developments that are adjacent to cmmc so one of the first ones i was lucky enough to get asked to give a guest lecture at nyu uh so i was able to go to grad school through this program they have set up there that's taught partly through the law school partly through the engineering school it's a master's degree in cybersecurity risk and strategy. It's very interesting because it's really a forum type of approach where they get a bunch of lawyers in the room, they get a bunch of cybersecurity engineers in the room, and they make them fight. And, and nobody uh, gets over... a word out. <laughs> yeah. And so it brings up just a lot of interesting edge cases about what's going on in the world of regulation, the limits of regulation, the limits of technology, and the sort of tension and gaps between them. And what I was talking about in this guest lecture was the idea of the what they call the public-private partnership. And this is relevant to people who are dealing with CMMC because under the umbrella of the overall national cybersecurity strategy, the, up, the most recent version which should come out literally any day now, should come out in November. Um, the, the defining aspect of the United States approach to national cybersecurity strategy is something known as the public-private partnership in that critical infrastructure or critical data flows exist in private companies, but the government has a government obligation to protect them. And so all they can really do is ask private sector organizations to do good security and there are limits to their ability to regulate those entities in terms of having better and better security. And you can see this happening where TSA is turning the screws on pipelines and mm -hmm. the airports are starting to get security directives and the water sector is starting to get security directives. The defense industrial base is starting to get more and more security requirements. And so this relationship between the, the federal government and private industry has been a uneasy relationship for 20 years in terms of demanding better security from the government on top of private industry. And now you're starting to see more and more regulatory activity forcing the issue. And we're starting to see this sort of change in the public-private partnership. Now, the reason why this is interesting is that CISA really is at the, like, the, 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 the crux of this change in philosophy for the public-private partnership. And they just released their cross-sector performance goals. And this document is effectively their list of uh, risk-informed security controls that should be the goal of every critical infrastructure sector operator, whether you are in the water sector or agriculture or the defense industrial base, whatever it happens to be. As you are on your path to implementing an overall security program against the NIST cybersecurity framework, these are the 80 things that you should start with, right? And I find this to be a very interesting document because the 
interface between those goals and what is written in 800-171 is exactly like what we talked about last month, where the recommendations from joint security advisories from CISA map directly to the, re the recommendations and the requirements in 800-171. Because like we said before, it all maps back to 853. So I think when people see people talk about the CISA CPGs, these cross-sector goals, the NIST CSF and how CISA is recommending it versus what's going on with CMMC and 800-171. Just don't be fooled into thinking that these are two distinct things, right? They are actually talking about the same stuff under the hood, the same mm -hmm. 853 controls. They're just uh, wrapping them up in different wrapping paper, if you will, which you know, hopefully folks in the comments will let us know if they want us to dive further into that topic. But the CCCPGs are a very interesting way of looking at the same requirements. I think people will start to see the same patterns emerging between 171 CMMC and the CCCPGs. They're they're really not any different. No, it's it's actually um, just as you see in like the cybersecurity alerts. It's like implement MFA or do backups or or whatever. Yeah. It may be very simple and succinct, right? But then when you get here, it, it comes to the outcomes. The outcomes are more paragraphs. What you need to do failed login attempts, you need to have them logged in. And, yeah, and whatever. there's some useful like, examples. There's some useful examples, I think, in the CPGs that are, um, they sort of add to uh, the idea of what the controls even are. So we'll make sure that we put a link to those for people's reference. For a lot sure. of tie into CSF and a lot of tie in 53. And yeah, SOTA, and so. this is an interesting thing. This is my sort of, my, my point of contention with the CPGs is they said, hey, these are the goals that everyone should start with all critical infrastructure sectors, including the DIB, right? This is what everybody should do as a starting point. And they mm -hmm. said, these are great goals because they're measurable, mm -hmm. right? But there is no 171A that corresponds to the CPGs. Mm -hmm. There is no 171A that corresponds to the NIST cybersecurity framework, right? Mm -hmm. Because the NIST cybersecurity framework is just a abstraction of 853. So it isn't actually true that the CPGs are measurable. NIST is going through the process of updating the cybersecurity framework to CSF 2.0. And one of the workshops that they keep holding is, how are we going to make the CSF a measurable standard, right? The, the answer is, is you have to use 853A to evaluate the implementation of the controls described in the CSF. So when you see the CPGs, a lot what I predict is going to happen is people are going to say we like this way more than 800-171 because it's described at a higher level. It's mm -hmm. more approachable in its description, but it is not measurable. And this is a much longer conversation, so we'll add a link to an article from James Dempsey. Uh, he posted this very interesting and well-written article on Lawfare about when you regulate cybersecurity controls, they have to be measurable. And high-level goals are not measurable. Right. So that creates this tension between we want very open-ended descriptions of what to do in order to allow companies to do their own thing. But we also have to have distinct verification procedures that allow us to make sure that they've actually been implemented. And this tension, along with the tension of the public-private partnership pushing people towards more and more regulation... Uh, will just be very interesting to see play out because when you compare something like CMMC versus CISA CPGs, you get two very different perspectives from the government on what the minimum goals should be, even though they're talking about the same underlying controls. Yep.
So, yeah. So we've arrived at this point again, the the saddest part of the entire month, right? Where we have, (laughs) have, have come to the end of our, um, buddy chat back and forth and, and and are are going back and forth And, and, you know, um, obviously covered a lot here. There's going to be a lot of stuff in the comments for, for people to contribute on and, and, and a lot of areas for people, if they want to hear more about some of the topics that we brought up that we really didn't dig into that we can introduce those in the next, uh, next month's show. Right. Like we said, this happens every time where there's not enough time, even in a long form podcast like this to talk about all the things that happened in the month. I think we covered a lot of what happened at the town hall. Please let us know in the comments and the feedback, if you want us to dive into the questions that sort of get answered and don't get answered mm-hmm. in the town hall. Um, and then if any of the subjects that we covered in depth or just sort of hinted at uh, over the course of this very long conversation, if you want us to you know, redouble down onto any of those or dive into more detail, go ahead and let us know. We read all the comments, we read all the feedback. Uh, it's still very manageable at this point. So let us know what you wanna hear at this point, uh, we've tortured producer Dustin uh, into having to listen to everything uh, so far. Hopefully not too much uh, editing on the back end, but I think leading into November, uh, there's still a bunch of stuff that we expect to see, right? Still expect to see more analysis of what's going on with 171, what's going to come out with the National Defense Authorization Act, anything that has to do with CUI and requirements in the DIB, mm-hmm. changes to... Uh, what's going on with CMMC rulemaking status, and it's moved to OMB. So still tons and tons of stuff that are going to happen in the lead up to the holidays. Um, So probably not going to slow down before our next recording. And then we'll actually have feedback from the ecosystem summit to see what, if any of the stuff, you know, we thought was going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. So still, you know, we've already got a list of stuff to talk about for the, uh, the end of November here. And then, uh, and then we'll go from there. So uh, as always, man, this is super enjoyable whenever we actually have the time to dive into this stuff long form Yeah, and end up needing to try to, it's, you know, I think it should, it should sort of go to show, right? If you have any type of um, thought about the relationship of all these various developments and things like that, it takes longer than five or 10 minutes to explain it. So if you end up with a bunch of 30 minute webinars, there's really only so much detail that you can go into. So and the webinars are was... full of the things that you want to hit hard on, you know, you, you yeah, want to make those sure. impact statements. And then here we actually get the chance to actually dig into it, to talk about it and to, to, to provide thoughts and, and insights yeah. that you don't hear that are usually excluded from a webinar. So yeah, that's the best way to so, do it. Yeah. So hopefully with, you know, the second episode, let us know. Uh, and then we'll take that feedback and then we'll, calibrate the podcast from there but for now i think that was it 